Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where new signings are guaranteed a great debut. Join and choose your welcome offer at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hello and welcome to VAR at the Bar, episode 20. I'm Dan and I'm joined by the usual suspects. I'm Ant. And I'm Chris. Welcome, guys. It feels like uh, it's been forever since we last recorded. Getting the band back together. How you been? Uh, not too bad, thanks, mate. It feels like a E17 reunion or something like that <laughs> from an old pop band in the 90s. Yeah, we've not been going that long. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> Yeah, lockdown feels like it's been going on forever, doesn't it? <laughs> You've been enjoying football on the telly lately? Or is that not easy to do at the minute as a Liverpool fan? Can we uh, can we move on from this conversation? Hey, you won in the Champions League. <laughs> You're on course to qualify again. Win a, lift a trophy. More I than I can say for my team. <laughs> I'm still bitter about that, by the way. Leicester just taking a nosedive and bowing out with a whimper in the Europa League. Disgrace. I, I, t- I tell you something, that would have been a great game. Uh, Leicester, Leicester Rangers. That would have been yeah. interesting over two legs. Yeah, it would have been more interesting if um, there were fans at, in Glasgow. <laughs> well, Brendan. Oh, there, there were fans, though, weren't they? <laughs> They're celebrating the, the championship win. <laughs> oh, yeah. Rules don't apply to them. That's right. <laughs> no, great, great job. Rangers are going to win Europa League, I reckon. I think Rangers are going to win it. Old That's a big statement there. Yeah, I'm, I've got a feeling. Oof, in your bladder. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to go uh, go to another English club. I'm going Spurs. I think the wait's going to be over. Oh, he beat me to it. I was going to go Spurs. <laughs> yeah, I just I think, think that that's one way Jose, a typical Jose way of getting into the Champions League. That would be one there. Yeah. Doesn't just come in the top four. On. Yeah, exactly. Could what here we go? Here's one, lads. What if, for example, Liverpool win the Champions League, yeah, and they don't finish in the top four, and Spurs win the Europa League and they don't finish in the top four? So, that could we have six teams in the Champions League? I think or would so. they take up fourth place? No, the, the, the maximum's five. I remember researching this last year because they changed the rule after, after Liverpool won it last time. 
or not last yeah. year, in 05, and we didn't yeah. qualify in the league. Yeah, they tried to pull yeah, they had out, to go they? through all the lower... <laughs> they went from uh, round one on qualifying, didn't they? Yeah, starting yeah. Like in July or something, didn't we? Mm. That would be a bit interesting, though. Five teams in the Champions League and say Liverpool having to do that again, go all the way from the back. I think they have five teams in the Champions League, but only two in the Europa League, if I remember rightly. You sacrifice oh, okay. a spot there and it gets handed to one of one of the lesser nations. But surely so, Liverpool would, Liverpool would go wouldn't have to qualify no. at the bottom no. again if, no, if they won it. Spurs might have to as yeah. a Europa League winner. So the, so really then the emphasis is then to finish third, isn't it? It could get very interesting come the end of the season. Yeah. You might get Leicester back in the Champions League. Don't worry, Dan. Okay. I want to see <laughs> you again. Yeah, I'm it'd not, it'd I'm be not a kicker for Leicester if they finished fourth and got like didn't qualify because of Liverpool. And <laughs> oh, if we finish fourth, I'll be happy, no matter what. That would be a great achievement. Yeah. All right, we digress. I'll uh, I'll introduce the uh, the lineup we've got for this episode. So, first of all, I've tasked us with having a bit of a discussion around Brexit and the impact this is going to have on the Premier League clubs recruiting. So, um, yeah, I'm sure you're all chomping at the bit to get at that one. And next up, Ant's going to give us his entry for the good, the bad, the obscure. I'll give us a bit of a Warnock watch update. Then we're going to move on to our top 10 football club scandals. So I know you've uh, had a bit of fun with that one as well, guys. Well, I think my Our brain's going to the... explode, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot to take in, yeah. <laughs> right, once that's uh, finished, I'll go move on to a bit of fantasy football and then I'll uh, see you go head-to-head on a quiz. Okay. Sounds good. Right. So, Brexit. Uh, Britain exited the EU on New Year's Eve this year and with it brought some rule changes to the way that Premier League clubs recruit. So um, I'll just run through uh, a short summary of some changes. Uh, first of all, there's no signings of players under the age of 18. Uh, those from the EU can only be signed once they're 18. So if you're from the UK, you can be 16 and have parental permission. Uh, EU and non-EU citizens must qualify for a governing body endorsement or GBE for short. Now, there's a lot of criteria for that, which I'm not going to go too deep into, but it's based around uh, appearances at international level, appearances that you've made in your league. Your league gets a rating uh, to sort of um, calibrate the scores. And then also there's uh, other competitions involved in that, like the uh, Champions League, the Copa Libertadores. British nationals will need a visa to play in other leagues. So countries that have restrictions on non-EU players in a match squad. That will apply to British nationals now, moving abroad. Premier League clubs are still required to have eight homegrown players in their squads. So um, that's going to be an interesting one as the clubs move forward. A transfer can only be immediately approved with a score of 15 points on that calibration scale. Uh, Similar to the old system, if it was for non-EU signings before, now it's going to be to all signings from abroad. Uh, the big change is that moving up the scale is the Copa de Libertadores. That's now rated as one of the top competitions in the world. So if, if you're a player who's making appearances in that competition, then Premier League clubs can more easily recruit you now. 
Uh, European citizens will need a visa to work in the UK, same as anywhere else in the world. And clubs can no longer rely on uh, the free movement of labour under EU rules. So you can't uh, sign a player that's playing in the second tier of France, for example. Uh, you just won't be able to pick up somebody like that anymore in the same way. I made a short list of examples of transfers which um, happened which, in the past, which would no longer be able to take place under these rules. Uh, for example, Jadon Sancho, he would not have been able to leave Man City to go to Borussia Dortmund at that age. Shame with uh, Jude Bellingham and Cesc Fabregas, who moved in the other direction. And uh, N'Golo Kante, who moved from uh, France to England, having played just one season in the French top flight and no caps at senior level. It would have been unlikely to be approved. So is there anything else that you picked up on, guys, when you were researching this? Yeah, I mean, for me, the only other main thing that I've I've seen is that it actually includes coaches as well as players. Yep. So you, it could be a, a lack of maybe or more difficulty for managers to, you know, you wouldn't be able to maybe get your Daniel Farkas and D- David Wagner's yeah. coming yeah. from, you know, academy managers to them being put into a championship or a lower end sort of Premier League team. Yeah, so good shout. interesting. No, absolutely. That's going to change things, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously, I know. For example, I know. I'm just going from just my head with championship, but like Barnsley, I know have recruited quite a lot of managers that have been from the German league, or and Brentford have as well yeah. after Dean Smith, and um, that might not be able to happen for them. So they would have to then go with more homegrown managers and coaches as well. So it could be interesting times. Yeah, where there was free movement of labour before from EU countries, now you have to look at their credentials and they'll be assessed. That's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, good point. Did you come up with anything else? Yeah, just like, well, I mean, Chris just mentioned Brentford and Barnsley. Obviously, like Brentford especially, they recruit a lot of players from lower league foreign Foreign clubs like the main striker Brian, one of the best players in the championship. He he wouldn't have been able to come over because he was playing at some second tier French team. Timo Puki wouldn't have been able to play over here. He's got a few caps, hasn't he? He might have had a few caps, but I don't. I I don't think he. um, I don't think Finland's whatever band they're in. I don't think he's high enough. It's not a guarantee, is it? You're right. So I see where you're coming from. I mean, another prime example that flew at me was um, someone like Mares. I mean, I don't know how many Algerian caps he had before he moved to Leicester. Did he have any? (laughs) Pardon? I don't think he had any. Yeah, so he probably wouldn't have been able to have done made the move. Definitely not. But I I did read there is there is one flip side is that like you touched on the Copa Libertadores or whatever. Someone like Suarez, a few years ago, when he was 18, 19, and he went to Holland, he wouldn't have been able to come to England. Whereas now he would have been, he would have had enough points. Yeah. So there is some flip side. that he, like The South American side would probably be able to get players easier from there than yeah. we are in Europe now. Yeah, I, I, think you've, I think you've hit on the major point. The major takeaway from all this, really, is that it's easier to recruit from South America now and it's much harder to recruit from Europe. Well, going to I mean, be whether whether the South Americans are being any good is not the matter, but 
Well, yeah, it is. But um, there are a lot of good South American players around. We've, we've seen plenty of evidence of that, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you can even sort of like look closer field. Like, if your hands are tied, then you're going to have to look more locally. So, yeah. players that probably wouldn't have broken through before this, it might actually break through. And then it might make the national team stronger because they're. The hands are a bit more, like I say, the hands are tied behind the back, so they have to play them a bit more and they'll probably get better and you'll probably get more breakout players for the even the lesser nations, you know, Scotland and Wales and, and England as well. It might might open that up a bit more. Yeah, I think so. I think um, sort of UK, British nationals, they'll become a bit more of a commodity. I think um, it might actually drive up prices for those players even higher. I think people. Yeah. I think the clubs will be wanting to recruit them a little bit more. No, um, I was just going to say. I think a lot of big clubs in the last couple of years have started using the youth talents anyway. Now, yeah, look at yeah. Foden, Curtis Jones, um, Smith Rowe, all of them are breaking through. Whereas probably yeah. ten years ago, probably wouldn't have made the cut. Would have been shipped off on loan to the Championship, perhaps. Yeah, and you're right, and. Um... The, the spots in that squad would probably be made up in that first team rotation, probably made up by players from other leagues that are brought in. And we're seeing now that there's barriers being put up that wouldn't necessarily allow you to fill up your squad unless they're full-fledged internationals and you've got an all-star lineup. So teams at the, the bottom end of the Premier League and teams in the Championship, you mentioned like Brentford, I think they're the ones that are going to be more affected by these changes. Yeah, yeah. And Scottish, um, Scottish teams as well, probably. Mm. So I mentioned uh, as one of the bullet points that it will hurt the prospects of uh, UK players wanting to leave and play abroad. So especially players that are in academies and not getting opportunities. Um, we've seen recently a lot of players move to Germany, but they won't be able to do this unless they're over a certain age and they, again, meet certain criteria for having made appearances. And uh, in Spain, for example, in their squads, they're only allowed three non-EU citizens in a match day squad. So that makes uh, English players now less attractive to them. So it damages the prospects of some e- even top English players wanting to play abroad. Yeah, it is a shame because obviously, like you know, like your Sancho's and your Bellingham's have gone to Germany and really enhanced their careers and got England call-ups out of it. And you know, Bruce Dortmund especially have a brilliant you've set up it's a shame that they're, they're missing out on that now well they're not missing out on them they can probably go when they're 20 but hmm. no but you know it's a fair point it's um it's been good for english football seeing these players develop very quickly at a top german team i think we've all enjoyed watching those players progress so um now that that's not really on the table for any youth prospects i wonder what's what's going to happen with them are they going to get opportunities playing in this country yeah. I hope it changes. Go on, Chris. So I was going to say, you never know. It might, those in some cases, there might be that, that criteria might be relaxed up after a while, as in it might be slightly less points that you need to be eligible. And it, that, and obviously, they're just a trial and error process, maybe. You just never know and whether how it goes until it starts up properly. Is that to, is that to start up immediately? point uh i think so yeah i think it's just yeah. to, just to sign and make it make the transfer move over there yeah 
to get a visa. So um, I think we've touched on the uh, the major changes. Have you got any more predictions on how things might change and how this might affect clubs? What clubs might do differently moving forwards? I think no, I think it will probably affect more the lower end Premier League teams where they look to wheel, wheel and deal. Like use the the examples um Kante, Mares, they were people that were bought from you know, sort of lower leagues in different countries and they won't meet that criteria now. So you won't be getting any of these shock, um, little bit of re- wheeling dealing business, I don't think as much now for it, maybe. Or there'll be less probability. But then you also might not get the uh, rubbish flops that come over for silly money at the age of 19 and do nothing. I know, but then we can't do a top 10 on them. So. Well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've put a few um, well theories together on what might happen, how it might play out. Um, I think there's more of a need for players to, sorry, for clubs to develop players uh, in other leagues, I could see there being like partnerships with sister clubs. So, like Chelsea had a relationship with Vitesse, uh, Man City with New York City, Man United with Royal Antwerp, uh, Leicester City with OH Leuven in the Belgian league. You could well see um, players being recruited to these clubs and developed there and getting appearances in other leagues. Or it could be a case that um, the Premier League clubs sign the players and then instantly just send them out on loan. If they don't meet the criteria to be eligible to appear in the Premier League, just sign them up, send them out on loan to the French League. The team that's just promoted to League 1 and then they can get the appearances in next season and all of a sudden they meet the criteria to play in the British League. could be a bit of strategy circumventing the rules like that. It depends on the player, I think. I think if you sign like the next, I don't know, Mbappe or whatever and... He's like, oh, great, I'm signing for Man City. And then, like, well, we're going to ship you off to League Two in France for a few years. I don't think they'd be too happy. Even the age of 18. <laughs> what some of the attitudes are like. But he'd know here's when he a, signed. Here's a, here's a good scenario, though. It's like the Watford manager, he, not manager, so the Watford chairman. He owns Grenada, Udinese, and Watford. Oh, he's probably rubbing his hands with glee. Doing it even more than he mixes all, all together now. I mean, I looked at the Udinese team like, from a game this week. I think it was against Milan. And he had um, Delefeo there for Udinese. I was like, I didn't even know he moved. There's a few familiar names on that team sheet at Udinese at the minute. It's funny how they all move around between those three clubs, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, isn't it? But they all have the same owner. Yeah, I could see more of that going on. Yeah. Definitely. Any more predictions, Ant? You got anything else? Um, no, I was, I was going to talk about the, the sister clubs, but you beat me to it. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's right. No, that's fine. All right. I've not got anything else. Chris, have anything else from you? Uh, no, no. I think you, you've covered all, all my things. I, I did was going to, I did have uh, the GBE on there, but you beat me to it. So right. that's about it from me. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your input, guys. I think we've uh, just about covered everything on that one. So uh, we'll move on now to Ants. Good, the bad, the obscure. I hear you've got another corker for us this week. Is that right? Um, I wouldn't say it's corker. It's quite a funny story. All right. It's uh, it's it's another goalkeeper. <laughs> they do we need, to, the best we need to change it to the goalkeeper that was good, 
bad or obscure. Or like so, have you heard of Jean Marie Faf? No. No. Belgium goalkeeper. Um, so he he played for a Belgium outfit called Beveren for most of his career. Um, at the end of the 1970s, Beveren won the Belgium League, which was a shock given that they were up against powerhouses of, and the Lecton Bruges. Uh, 1978 to 1979 season saw them lose the Cupmaners Cup semi-final against Barcelona. Um, but bear in mind that they were mainly semi-professionals. Uh, this was seen this was you know pretty impressive and Faf played a huge part so much so that he won the golden shoe which is basically player of the year in 1979 um an award which is normally populated by and electing bruge players uh this didn't go unnoticed and just before the world cup of 1982 bayern munich came calling for him now faf had already become a bit unpopular in the national team um and his move to west germany didn't do anything to help this even the national manager at the time, Guy Tice, was a bit fed up of him and they all thought he was a bit cocky. Uh, they beat Argentina in their opening game 1-0 and they eased past El Salvador and then they took on Hungary in the final group match. They were a goal down midway through the second half when Faf came to cut out a cross and he inadvertently clattered his captain, Eric Duretz. Uh The right-back lay there motionless on the pitch for about a minute and was then substituted. An ambulance was called, but it didn't arrive until after the match had finished. And about 10 minutes later, Faf then attempted another reckless challenge, and this time he nearly took out uh, Hungary's Laszlo uh, Fazikas. Anyway, after the game, uh, Goretz was still concussed, and he was taken to the ambulance, only to find that Faf was already in there, complaining of an injured shoulder. And the ambulance sped off, leading, leaving Goretz and his teammates severely annoyed at what the keeper had just done. <laughs> so <laughs> Faf's injury turned out to be completely minor, um, but it didn't do anything to add to his reputation in the squad. Uh, so the manager, Guy Tice, uh, a, week, uh, a couple of days later, arranged a poolside party at the team's hotel. Um, and the Belgian press were also invited. And there was a, a well-known... Belgium commentator by the name of Jan Walters. He was there. He, he was a good friend of Tice. Um, and he thought it'd be a good idea to push Faf into the swimming pool. So he, he crept up behind him and pushed him in. And everyone started laughing. And then they realised that Faf couldn't swim. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he was eventually rescued. And he was absolutely furious that you know, he'd been pushed in the pool. And he was the star of the team and all this. Uh, he was angry at his manager because his manager hadn't told his mate off for doing it. Um, Tice later came out and said that he believed that Faf was making the whole thing up and that he could actually swim. He was just being a bit of a clown. Um, and there was an incident, again, still in the same World Cup, uh, where police were called to the team hotel as Faf had reportedly seen someone enter his teammate René Verheyen's room. When the police arrived to talk to Verheyen, uh, they discovered the interloper was in fact his wife. <laughs> um, it was fair to say that Faf was really pissing people off by this point. So much so that uh, Tice chose to leave him out of the next match in the World Cup, which was in the second group stage, and he picked uh, Theo Custers instead. Belgium were beaten 3-0 by Poland, 
but rather than recall Faf for the make-or-break clash with Russia, Twice turned to his third-choice goalkeeper, uh, Jacques Munneron, and Belgium lost 1-0. Uh, anyway, Tice wasn't seen as a villain. The, the Belgium FA said that Faf was an immature child and only wanted to the, sort of seek publicity. Uh, he went on to have a successful career at Bayern, um, and he enjoyed the notoriety of being a bit of a clown. Um, although he did have to work a bit hard to win over the German media to start with, especially after conceding a comic own goal on his debut. He eventually did get back into the national team for Euro 84 and uh, Mexico 86, and he remained a colourful character throughout his career. Um, and he was named by Pele in 2004 as one of the top 125 greatest living footballers. And he uh, then went on to star in a Belgian TV show called Die Fafs, which was based about him and his family, which ran for 10 years. Wow. That's like it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Wow. Bit of a character. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I like that. I thought Bruce Rockwell was bad. <laughs> yeah. So he invented the Schumacher t- tackle before anyone else did by the sounds of things. Sounds like it. Harold Schumacher did it. <laughs> Except he did it on his own players. <laughs> Yeah, I like that one. All right. Well, thanks very much for that, Anne. I enjoyed That's another fine. one of these really obscure stories you seem to be good at finding now. <laughs> I've got another one up my sleeve. Bloody hell. Uh, okay. <laughs> which is, which is, not, which is an, another goalkeeper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to dig a goalkeeper out for mine now. All right. We'll move on to an update with Warnock Watch. So, have you heard the news this week that Mr. Warnock has signed a contract extension with Middlesbrough? Whoop, whoop. Yeah, so oh. we've, we've got a bit more Warnock watch lined up for next season as well. Well, it doesn't mean anything, does it? Contracts don't mean anything <laughs> these days. <laughs> no, it's not a guarantee, is it? But You might no, fancy well, return especially... to Sheffield United. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. All right, there's been, um, there's been quite a few games since we, uh, we were last... Uh, giving people an update on Warnock Watch. So I'll read through um, all these results. Uh, they lost 2-1 at Derby. They beat Huddersfield 2-1. They beat Reading 2-0, which was a very good result. But then they lost 3-1 at home to Bristol City, drew 1-1 with Cardiff, which um, I'm sure he wishes he could have that one back and try and turn them over. Uh, then they got a 2-1 win against Coventry. And then this past weekend, they lost 2-1 against Swansea City. So a run of patchy form. And they're now sitting in ninth in the league table. And they're eight points off the playoff positions. And that, by the way, is Barnsley sitting in sixth place at the minute in the championship. Yeah, I didn't predict that one at the start of the season. It's an unbelievable turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, I remember seeing Barnsley in the um, the FA Cup against Chelsea, and I was quite impressed, actually. They're very mm. direct. Good team. But anyway, I wanted to uh, to update people on um, the latest game that Middlesbrough had with the 2-1 defeat by Swansea. Now, in this game, they had a goal disallowed, Middlesbrough. Uh, a foul was given against uh, Yannick Balassi, and it was a very questionable, to say the least. Uh, I'm not sure there was any contact there whatsoever. 
And then Middlesbrough did equalise, uh, 1-1 at the end of the game. And then a controversial 96-minute penalty for Swansea. So the game slip away from Middlesbrough right at the death. So um, do you reckon Mr. Warnock had anything to say about that? I know he definitely had something to say about it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Even, even from his normal standards, it was quite controversial. And that says something, I think. Yeah, I thought you might have spotted this one in the news. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I picked up on an interview post-match and um, he was asked, which decision in particular has annoyed you? And he's responded, where do you want to start? Ten minutes in, Manning took Dyke Steele out and he had to come off injured. Well, that should have been a goal to us or a penalty. Their kid dived and the referee gives them free kick. I'm a little bewildered about the penalty. He pointed for a corner kick and then he assures me that he thought about it and decided that George Savile didn't get any of the ball after all and therefore it was a penalty. Why would you point to the corner flag and then give a penalty? <laughs> if you're not sure, you don't give it. But they all want to be heroes and get the celebrity status. My lads have been let down today by a team of officials who weren't good enough. I was then asked if the referee, if he'd spoken to the referee. And he said, you can't speak to them now. You're not allowed. So they've got a cover. I'll have to speak to Steve. That's Steve Cooper, the um, Swansea manager. See if I can get his dad's number, Keith Cooper. He must have some influence somewhere. Keith Cooper being a former referee. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be getting an apology from the director of referees, Alan Wiley. I've had three or four of them in the last six weeks. I've had that many apologies. I don't know what to do with them. So, yeah, to say he was a little aggrieved would be an understatement. Well, funny enough, you said that. Um, Swansea, the game before, had a very dubious penalty given for them against Stoke in injury time. And I think he mentioned that as well in another press conference later. That is the second week running. And then, funny enough, midweek, Swansea drew again and their goal was through a penalty. So, at the moment, it's not great times for for Mr Cooper at the moment. Yeah, I remember some, uh, a tongue-in-cheek uh, quote from Warnock saying, oh, if, oh, if they get the right referees every week like that, they'll be getting promoted. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he quickly, he also started uh, he quickly that said in- it's a tongue-in-cheek Comment, didn't they as well? We yeah, uh, it was. It was very tough. Elaborate too much. <laughs> but um, he started that whole interview with, "How can I say anything and not get fined?" <laughs> uh, so yeah, I feel for him. Having seen those incidents in the Swansea game, I do feel for him. He's definitely been yeah. hard done by. But um, yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. See if he has a bit bit more better look in the weeks coming up. He's still in the hunt, though. That's the main thing. A couple of yeah, games away, he's not much, not much in the championship, is it? That's right. Eight points away. That's that's nothing, is it? So he's, uh, he's still in there. Still in with a shout. Okay, next up, we'll be moving on to our top 10 football club scandals. So uh, I introduced this to you last time. We've had a bit of time to do a research. And how have you both found this list? Uh, interesting. I'll be honest, it's been interesting, it's been hard. There's been a lot of words that I don't understand, uh, understood for a lot of them. All right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think I think on the whole I found some found some decent ones. So. Good stuff. How you found it, Chris? Yeah, same really. It's just, uh, it, 
it's very hard to try and find your criteria is perfect because we would be repeating a lot of them if it was on all football scandals. And no doubt we've already mentioned a few of them on other pieces as well. So I think I think a bit of digging and some of it I've said to Ant before we did the recording, it's just unbelievable how some of these people thought they could get away with it in in all times. <laughs> it's just madness. <laughs> but yeah, I found it really interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I find it the same. Um, I find it interesting, to be honest. Um, I've made quite a few notes to try and tell the stories, but uh, and it took a it took a bit of time to go through it. It's been a good one to look back into the history books. I found a f- couple of obscure ones as well to um, try and be a bit different. All right, uh, I'm going to come to you first, Dan. Do you want to give us your number ten? All right. Uh, yeah, my number ten is Wolverhampton Wanderers and the Monkey Gland Affair. Okay. Never. I've not heard of this one. No. Okay. This looks like someone, is, someone's dug this one out. Yeah. Well, this is why I called it Wolverhampton Wanderers and didn't say Wolves and the Monkey Gland Affair. Or you might think we're doing Attenborough or something. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, it all started um, in 1927. Wolves appointed Blackpool manager Frank Buckley, nicknamed the Major. Uh, he was very hands-on type of manager. He used to get involved in training sessions. And he, he used to have some pretty radical ideas, uh, and he used to give Blackpool players pep pills. Uh, basically, he wasn't afraid to uh, try things that would give the team a competitive edge. So it was this that led to what became known as the Monkey Gland Affair. And in 1937, he was approached by a scientist called Menzies Sharp about a radical new treatment that can improve stamina, accelerate recovery times, and improve performance revolving around monkey gland implementation. Uh, he tried it out on himself first, and he was amazed by these results. And the treatment lasted three to four months. He saw a radical change in himself. And so it wasn't long before the Wolves players were given injections. Not all of them. Some of them did refuse. Um, the improved performances led to suspicions among the football world. Tommy Lawton, who played, who was part of the Everton team to lose 7-0 to Wolves, said that he tried to speak to his England teammate Stan Cullis but he walked past with glazed eyes. And then after Leicester were beaten 10-1 by Wolves, they complained to Leicester MP Montague Lyons, who demanded the government get involved. Um, The Minister of Health rejected it, uh, but Emmanuel Shinwell, who was a Labour MP at the time, said that maybe the the Conservative government should have these injections to open their eyes to what was going on. Um, It was effectively a very early doping scandal. Uh, they, They did investigate, uh, and while they didn't ban any of these injections, they provided information to be freely available and that these injections should be voluntary. Um, this led to Portsmouth, Spurs and Chelsea to try them out. And the 1939 FA Cup final was dubbed the Monkey Gland final as Portsmouth beat Wolves 3-0. But it was only really Portsmouth and Wolves that saw any benefits of this. And when the Second World War broke out, the whole thing kind of disappeared. But yeah, at, at a time, there was a period that like I said, it was just a very early doping scandal. Wolves were gaining advantage. Wow, it's a good one. Can I just say, and you've set the bar very high, mate. Yeah, <laughs> shaking my boots now. That was brilliant. I think I think I need to stop the recording. I think I need to get my number ten sorted out. I need to do some more research. No, I'm sure it'll be fine, Chris. Go on, go for it. Okay, so my number ten is a friendly between Bahrain and Togo. Do you know anything about that? 
No. Okay, that's good. So, as I said, there was a friendly between Bahrain and Togo in September 2010. Uh, Bahrain ended up winning 3-0. On paper, fair enough, that's done and dusted. However, um, um, post-match, the Bahrain's team coach at the time was an Austrian called Joseph Hickensberger. He expressed his surprise at the opponent's lack of fitness and that they weren't fit enough to play for 90 minutes. And he even said that the match was really boring and one-sided. So, obviously, word filtered back to the Togo FA about this. And they knew nothing about the international or any of their players even being there. <laughs> um, it was actually, the match was actually organised by a fake football agent. It then emerged that a disgruntled former coach of Togo, Tishali Barna, has assembled a group of fake Togo players whilst receiving a payment of almost uh, £40,000 from an international syndicate um, to arrange the in- to arrange the international. Uh, at the time, Bahrain didn't think it was strange at all that they didn't that Togo didn't even supply a team sheet at kickoff. And um, like I said, it ended up being three 0 and uh, Bahrain ended up having five legit- legitimate goals written off as well. Uh, and the whole thing was just a bit of a scam. <laughs> so um, that's my number ten. <laughs> what year was wow. that? Sorry, that was twenty ten. Blimey. And, and can I just say, it was it's quite a good uh, pun, actually, that they used the title for this, but it's Fake Togo Take the Mick. Quite like <laughs> But oh, yeah, so, one. so I thought that was an interesting one, like uh, someone getting their revenge. <laughs> God, that's a scandal if I've ever heard one. That's brilliant. <laughs> Rest assured that this is the real Togolese football team. Their identity's been in some doubt ever since a group of imposters appeared in the national colours for a friendly match in Bahrain. Their surprisingly weak showing that night aroused the suspicions of the local football authorities. The genuine players were actually returning from a match in Botswana at the time. All right, I'll go for my number 10, and I've gone for a Dutch football drug scandal. The Dutch players Frank de Boer, Jaup Stam and Edgar Davids all tested positive for nandrolone, a banned analytic steroid. This was in the year 2000. Has this one made on your list, either of you? No. You, you know what? I, I heard about this, but again, like you, I remember hearing about it, but can't remember much about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't think I don't think too much has been made of it. And um, I'll just I'll just give you a bit more detail. Um, so. All three of these players denied any wrongdoing. Um, so Darius was with Juventus. He was tested positive in March 2000. And he denied taking any substance. He legally challenged the decision and his ban was reduced to five months, or a five-month backdated ban at the time of the appeal. Uh, and this raised eyebrows because 16-month bans were handed out to lesser-known players, uh, Perugia's Salvatore Monaco and Christian Bucci and Pescara's Andrea De Bold. They all tested for Nandrolone in September of that year and their, their ban was 16 months. So that was a bit of a scandal in itself where there's different punishments for different players. Uh, De Boer, 
Frank De Boer was at Barcelona and he also appealed and had his one-year ban reduced to four months. And Yelp Stam had his ban reduced from five months to four months on appeal. So I think there's a lot of player power involved here in getting these bans reduced. But also it watered down the fact that these players had tested positive and now seemingly there's very little faith in these tests and of any wrongdoing whatsoever. So that's why it became a bit of a scandal. It was like, what was the point in all these drug tests? And if you think back as well to the likes of Rio Ferdinand, who didn't even bother turning up for a drugs test, a lot of that attitude comes from instances like this, where the rules were put in place and we wanted anti-doping measures in place, but they didn't really know what they were doing and the tests weren't robust. So it all backfired. And um, yeah, back in the year 2000, it was all a bit of a bit of a scandal on how it was handled. Uh, I've got a quote from Yap Stam in his autobiography where he says, uh, I refuse to believe either player, so he's talking about De Boer and Davids, knowingly took Nandrolone. At the time, it was thought that the substance was contained in some vitamin pills handed out by the Dutch team doctor. But I'm not convinced by this theory as I was given these pills and I was given clearance from the Man United doctors that they're okay. Uh, lots of people were calling for a probe into all Dutch players to be tested. And I got a quote from Edwin van der Sar as well, where he said that he was scared that he would be tested positive. He had no idea what he was putting into his body when he went to wear an international duty. That was when he was the Fulham goalkeeper at the time. So although there was uh, there was no real conclusion, it was it was still a scandal in the press. There were lots of embarrassment and anger around these positive tests and then the the punishments that followed thereafter. So that's why I've got that down at number 10. Yeah. Fair enough. It's a good start there, mate. Well, I had a lot to live up to. You two <laughs> flying out of the box. <laughs> know, I'm right, a bit worried got... now. I might have to change my order. <laughs> well, clock's ticking. All right, we're on to number nine. What have you got there for us, um, you might have heard of this one, maybe. Um, it was uh, the Nigerian max-fixing scandal. I looked at this one. Was this involving a police team or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. It involved um, four teams in Nigeria. Um, so Plateau United Feeders and uh, Police Machine went into the last playoff matches level on points with promotion to, to the lowest nationwide uh, league division in Nigeria at stake. Uh, both Plateau United officials and police machines sent their spies to one another's match venue who were giving moment-by-moment report of what was going on at the other venue. So anytime Plateau scored, information was quickly passed to police machine, so they scored two at their own venue. Uh, at half-time, Plateau United feeders team had scored seven, police had scored six. Um, it was obvious at both teams that it would be a matter of whom outscored the other at the end of the day. Um, their opponents, uh, Akurba FC and Bubayaro FC, were, were also willing to play ball and help them. So by the end of the match, Plateau Feeders scored 72 of their goals in the second half, while Police Machine reportedly scored 61 times by the end of the match. The results <laughs> meant that Plateau edged above Police on goal difference. Uh, FIFA got wind of this and got involved straight away. And um, the Nigerian Football Federation found out that one of Feeders' players scored 14 goals, while in the other match, Police Machine struck four goals in a minute, something which is basically <laughs> impossible. 
Plateau went on to defeat uh, Akurba 79-0, while police beat uh, Bubayaro 67-0. The police force were first to distance themselves from the machine team. The management and owners of the other teams involved also washed their hands of the incident, claiming ignorance of the matrix and scandal. <laughs> the four clubs were then banned from the game for 10 years, um, but the owners decided to disband. It was a show of shame. They'd brought shame to Nigeria football and it cannot be pardoned. Yeah, that's it. And basically all the players and match officials involved ended up having um, uh, a life sentence. That's just mental. I don't know how they thought they'd get away with that. I don't know. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. All right, Chris, what have you got for us at number nine? Okay, now this one's, this one's actually quite a well-known one. I think you guys will know it. Um, 1982 World Cup group match, France versus Kuwait. Ah, yeah. Yep, I know it. I know it, but uh, I didn't add it. Yeah, I've not okay, added it. No, no worries. Um, yeah, so at the time of this controversial moment, France was 3-1 up against Kuwait in the group match. They scored a legitimate goal to make it 4-1, but Kuwait um, players protested, saying that they heard a whistle in the stadium, so they stopped playing. So, obviously, back in those days, there wasn't VAR around. Um, so, <laughs> so um, the, goal, the goal stood, but then the Q80 players decided to sort of go to, to walk off the pitch. Um, the president of the Q80 FA, a Prince Fahid, came from his seat up in the stands all the way onto the pitch to dispute this decision, to argue with the officials. Like I said, the, the players refused to play at this time as well. So a sort of mayhem ensured, really. Uh, There's people from the, the army down there as well, and the French players, I don't think, quite knew what was going on. Um, so at this point, um, the referee decided to have a little chat to the linesman and the linesman agreed with the ref to disallow the goal. We still don't know why. And um, to the fury of the French, the goal, st- the goal didn't stand. So then the, the French then decided to refuse to play as well. After, I think, about 20 minutes of absolute carnage, um, play resumed. And then almost immediately from the kickoff, the French scored the goal anyway. So it's sort of all that came in. <laughs> Not in much vain, really. Um, they ended up losing the game 4-1. Um, the referee, Marislav Stubar, was banned from officiating and the Prince was fined £8,000. Yeah, that was a really good one. That was a solid entry. I completely forgot about that one, to be honest. And offside, no he's not. It's Alan Jurette. And that one counts. To wait for a feeling... But the goal stands. Kuwait are contesting, presumably, the legality of the goal. They're saying, in fact, there was a whistle in the crowd which made the defenders stop. The police are being called in to get people away from the pitch. And I would imagine the head of the delegation has told the Kuwait players they must continue the game. Uh, my number nine is also from the uh, the World Cup archives. Gone for the uh, 1954 World Cup final between West Germany and Hungary. 
Okay. So Olympic champions Hungary were red-hot favourites for this World Cup, led by legend Ferenc Puskas. Uh, in the group stage, the teams had actually already met, and Hungary beat West Germany 8-3 in the group stage. So um, they met again in the final, and unfortunately, Puskas wasn't fully fit. He'd uh, picked up an injury, and he'd just about recovered enough to get on the field uh, just to lead the Hungarian team. Hungary were 2-0 up very early on in the match, but Germany fought back, and they were 3-2 up just Germany with two minutes remaining in the game when Puskas scored an equaliser. However, the linesman raised the flag, and after a minute of consultation, the goal was ruled out. Um, years later, footage eventually emerged showing that the goal should have stood. He wasn't offside. And a West German substitute called Alfred Pfaff, another Pfaff, said that the goal should have stood. Now, this led to the game finishing 3-2. West Germany lifted the World Cup in what was considered the uh, the miracle of Bern, one of the biggest shocks around at the time. And immediately after the match, rumours started to circulate that the German team had taken performance-enhancing substances. Now, I don't know whether this was... I can only speculate whether this was fueled by uh, the fact that um, substances were taken during the war and it wasn't the, too far after the war had finished. Uh, but uh, several members of the team actually fell ill with jaundice shortly after the game. And this is pre- presumably from a contaminated needle. So the, th- the rumours are that the players were injected with vitamins, but they didn't know at the time that they weren't, in fact, vitamins. It was methamphetamine. That was the accusation, a stimulant given to the soldiers during the war. Now, doping controls weren't uh, introduced in football until 1966. So there weren't any measures to prove whether there was any wrongdoing in that respect. So the accusation itself caused a bit of a scandal. And even if you go onto the Wikipedia page, there's a specific section under this match about doping uh, accusations. So there's certainly a level of scandal attached to this, even though there was no wrongdoing actually proven. But it has been documented. Wow, is it? We yeah, put it so past them now. It's, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's where I think most people are at. But it's a shame because it's, um, it's tainted that victory. Yeah. Now, I remember they were sort of trying to say certain facts, weren't they, about it? I read it some, on something else we were looking at, actually, that they were sort of a lot fitter and they were saying that the size, size of them was slightly more bigger than the other team and all sorts. It was a bit strange, but I can't, like I say, there's, there's quite a lot. There's no fuel without fire, is there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's sour grapes, but, yeah, the, there were strong rumours that circulated shortly after the match, and the team did, all, did, feel, did fall ill with jaundice, so they were being injected with something. Might have been the thing that Ant was talking about on his uh, number ten. Monkey glands. Yeah, monkey Could glands. Yeah, maybe. Might have hit the international scene. <laughs> Germany, wearing white shirts, kicked off against Hungary in the World Cup final at Bern. Throughout the cup series, Hungary had been the favourites, and indeed, it only took them six minutes to score a splendid goal by their captain Pushkas. Only two minutes later, the German defence fumbled and Chibo went through with another. Well, I'll be schnitzeled. Much the same situation near the Hungarian goal gave Germany their first chance. Morlock took it and the score was 
Seven minutes later, from a nicely placed corner, the ball went to outside right run and Germany had equalised. Hungary were naturally going all out in the second half, but the German defence survived. The big surprise came six minutes before the end when a long shot from Rahn gave the World Cup to Germany. All right. So, what have you got at number eight, Ant? Um, oh, will be. I've just realised. I, I thought you said only club football scandals. So that might be why I've not got any of these international ones on my list. Oh, okay. uh, it doesn't matter. Makes it different. Um, at number eight, I've got. Uh, Wigan, 2020. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Is that, is that on your list at all? Uh, I know about it, but no, I didn't even think of it, to be honest, mate. No, I, I, I did think about it, but no, I didn't put it on in the end. I mean, I'll be honest, it's never really been proved as a scandal, but it's quite obvious that something dodgy went down. Uh, 2018, Dave Whelan sold Wigan to Stanley Choi, a professional poker player based in Hong Kong. Um, he initially made a bid of $17.5 million to buy the club, and then he um, injected a further $24 million into it over the next 18 months. Never attended a game. Um, it was purely a business investment. But in June 2020, Wigan was transferred to another business in which he had a controlling interest, the New Leader Fund, or NLF, as it was known, uh, which was registered in the Cayman Islands. Uh, Choi's company, International Entertainment Corporation, lent uh, NLF $28 million with an interest rate of 8%, rising to 20%, if not paid back in 12 months. Basically, that's £100,000 a week in payments that Wigan wouldn't be able to afford. Um, EFL didn't seem to think it was dodgy. They approved the sale. A couple of weeks after that, and the NLF passed control over to a Hong Kong businessman called Ao Yong. Um, And a further week after that, uh, Chinese lawyers contacted administrators to seize control of the club because um, they couldn't even contact the owners. Uh, basically, this Ao Young guy paid $17 million for the club plus $28 million in loan repayments to own a club for seven days and then stick it into administration. It's all very dodgy. There's a lot of theories. Um, some suggest it was part of a Far East betting syndicate who bet high stakes on Wigan being relegated. Uh, administration would obviously deduct Wigan 12 points and that would put them then firmly back in the mix for relegation. Um, There was also a video of uh, EFL chairman Rick Parry at the time talking about a big bet in Philippines being placed. Um, A more likely scenario that was theorised was that Wigan was used to inflate Choi's company's share price, which funnily enough tripled after the sale of Wigan in June. And the number of shares bought and sold went from around 100,000 a day to 35 million. It was all just very dodgy. And obviously nothing's ever been proved, but it's, 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 ruined. Shame, isn't it? it's a crazy one. Some of the theories there are just utterly scandalous if they are true. It's mental. Well, even the Rick Parry get being involved with things and <laughs> all sorts. And no, it's a shame because. I remember they were mid-table, I think, in the championship, you know, yeah. on not no, doing... They were, you know, they were pretty much safe, I think, and then they got yeah. 12, 12 points. Yeah. yeah, and then that just sent them down. I just think it's a massively unfair fair way, mm-hmm. but obviously rules are rules, yeah, aren't Wednesday they? got deducted points after the season, which was... Yeah, I didn't the get next that. Season, which, which was weird. I didn't understand that. No, no, very odd. 
Very strange. All right, so what have you got for us at number eight, Chris? Yeah, I've got another World Cup one. This time it's um, Argentina versus Peru, 78. So this was a group game. Argentina had to win by four or more goals to progress to the finals at the expense of local rivals, Brazil. They ended up winning the game 6-0. Conspiracy theories ranged from the Peru goalkeeper having been bribed to suggestions that a large shipment of grain had been sent to them. But, however, the reason that is unofficial, but a lot of people have said, is that it was agreed by political leaders of both countries um, in exchange for 13 um, Peruvian political prisoners to be released. Wow. Which which is pretty major. Um, And I was just saying, I was going to say, with the tactics that Argentina used, cause controversy anyway, because they used to delay games until the outcome of the other results in in their group came through. So they knew exactly what they needed to do before each match. And a lot of people thought by by that happening that there could be a a real um, bit of cheating going on, which seems like there has been in this case. So... I would advise you again, I watched the, the goals this morning um, and they look very soft, personally. But <laughs> again, I, I know that there's been a series of interviews with um, goal keep, the goalkeepers and saying that it was a very strange game that they were involved in and that they were told not to, to try and all sorts. So that's why I put them at number eight. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, very good. How well he celebrated his return to Rosario, where he used to play. Two goals in the opening match in this second round against uh, Poland and two tonight. And Norton is really attacking the defence. Right past them, and Houseman scores. An almost solid wall of noise. Should be down. Free kick. Carici in trouble, La Rosa, Luque, 6-0. All right, at my number eight, I've gone for, it was a Euro 2000 qualifying playoff match between Denmark and Israel. Have you come across this one? No, no. Can't say I have. Okay. So, um. It's, uh, after the match, uh, there's an aggregate result over the two legs that Denmark beat Israel 8-0, absolutely thrashed them. And then the next day, an Israeli newspaper reported that the night before the uh, game in Tel Aviv, that they'd seen lots of women going into the team hotel. And their accusation was that there were lots of prostitutes going to visit the Israeli football team. Now, uh, the the team responded to the report and said that it was actually their wives and girlfriends that were going to visit them. But the reports were very embarrassing and MPs called for an inquiry into the incident. Uh, also, um, allegedly, there were large numbers of condoms discovered by hotel staff and four unnamed players later received bans. 
So no smoke without fire, as they say. <laughs> uh, but I've also got um, a quote that made me laugh here by Israeli Internal Security Minister Shlomo Ben Ami, where he's quoted as saying that the Danish team was so much better than Israel that if it had been the Danish players who partied all night with the girls, the result would have still been the same. <laughs> so, yeah, a bit of, of a different one. one. <laughs> it's different, isn't it? <laughs> I feel I've missed out with some of these international ones. Yeah, I think you have. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ant. <laughs> That's all right. I must have been me mishearing you. Well, what have you got for us at number seven? Uh, a very well-known one. Uh, West Ham, Tevez and Mascherano. Oh, Ooh. yeah. I've got this one at number six. Oh, so, lovely. Uh, yeah. Do go into it, Ant. I'll just add anything if... Uh, okay, if you want. Um in 2006, West Ham shocked football by signing, in inverted commas, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano. You know, apart from it being a shock, no one really thought much more about it. But in January of 2007, Liverpool uh, tried to sign Mascherano. And uh, this is when the deal, the, the dodgy deal came to light. Uh, it became clear that the Argentinian pair were owned by Media Sports Investment run by super agent Kia Jura Cabellan. So this broke two regulations, uh, U6 and U18, uh, both of which uh, forbid third-party player ownership from potentially influencing events at the destination club, like uh, factors such as when players could be sold and when they were played. Uh, at the time of the transfer agreements for both Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano, and right up until January the 24th, which was when Liverpool tried to sign them, West Ham hadn't disclosed any of these agreements to the Premier League. So it was the FA board's view that this constituted as a breach of Rule B13, uh, which states, in all matters and transactions relating to the league, each club shall behave towards each other um, and the league with the utmost good faith. Uh, now, West Ham claimed that Alan Pardew had complete control of the team, meaning that Rule U18 wasn't breached. The Independent Premier League Commission's decision to impose a record 5.5 million fine rather than a points deduction did all the watering and weeding required for the issue to come out into full bloom. West Ham opted not to appeal, funnily enough, and Kevin McCarb, the Sheffield United chairman, felt the decision invited anarchy. So the final day of the season, West Ham went to Old Trafford to face Manchester United and they got the win they needed, uh, with, of course, Tevez scoring the only goal of the game. Uh, at Bramall Lane, um, Neil Warnock's side needed only a draw to relegate their opponent, Wigan, um, who would have taken United's place, but uh, Wigan won 2-1 thanks to David Unsworth's penalty. So Sheffield United were relegated and they lost their initial appeal against uh, their relegation in summer of 2007 despite an arbitration panel admitting that it would, in all probability, have reached a different conclusion and deducted points from West Ham. So a year after relegation, an independent FA tribunal found in their favour, with the chair uh, judging that, we have no doubt that West Ham would have secured at least three fewer points over the 2006-2007 season if Carlos Terres had not been playing for the club. So Sheffield United wanted compensation of up to £45 million in lost income, but in the end, they decided to be fair, play fair, and um, they settled out of court with West Ham, which saw um, the Hammers pay £20 million to Sheffield United. And the final payment was delivered in the summer of 2013, um, and that's, that's basically all I have. 
Ah, you got a lot there. That's really good. No, it's a very controversial uh, act, wasn't it, by West Ham there? And I know that Mr. Warnock was not happy at all, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it's a it's a weird rule actually when you think about the that third party ownership happens all the time in Italy and Argentina and other leagues around the world. But it's a rule that's in the Premier League, it's still in place today that third party ownership is forbidden. Um really it's it's blatant that they broke the rule, isn't it? Oh yeah. It couldn't, it couldn't yeah. be more blatant. And it makes uh, yeah. you wonder how much longer it would have gone on for had Liverpool not put in a bid for Mascherano, how long it would have it would have gone under the radar for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange one. But yeah, to get the uh, the fine and no points deduction and um, West Ham just accept the decision, decide not to appeal it. <laughs> it says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. It's all very strange, I remember, because uh, Tevez had a very high reputation and like you say, Mascarano was the same. And um, to then go to a relegation threatened club, you just thought it didn't really sit particularly right. And obviously at the time, probably people... It made people stand up a little bit, but looking back on it, you probably thought that does not seem right at all, does it? What we know now is um, the owners, the third party owners, they just wanted them to be playing in the Premier League so it could raise the price. Yeah. Simple as that. Just United resting one or two players for the game against West Ham. Had West Ham been beaten, you would have stayed up? Well, I think what goes around comes around, really. You know, I'm looking forward to the. Cup final in the European Championship, and I'm disappointed at selections. Yeah, but uh, I, I thought I must admit I thought Sir Alex would play a stronger team than that, but uh, not to be. And, you know, just to see him celebrating on the pitch now, it's uh, you know, it's it's very it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, doesn't it? But it's only the same. We can blame everybody, really, can't we? Like I say, uh, two penalties, yes or no, from Rob Styles all season. As you know. Uh, they don't even, it doesn't even hurt them, does it? He'll not be bothered tonight, will he? Neither will some of the others, you know, some of the decisions, the commission, you name it. I think it's, it'll be easier to Sheffield United to get relegated than, than West Ham, wouldn't it? Or anybody else, really, because by Tuesday it'll be fish and chip paper and nobody will give two hoots, really. Okay, Chris, what have you got for us at seven? Well, I'm delving into, the, into Syria, or I should say the Italian leagues for this one. All right. Um, Cremonese versus Paganese in the Italian third division in 2010. It okay. was considered by me. Um, it didn't make the cut. How are you, Dan? Are you, you no, I'm not familiar with it. So okay. you enlightened me. Right. So, like I said, it was a, a league game in the Italian third tier, 2010. Uh, at the end of the first half, half the home team were ahead 2 0. Uh, but once they stepped onto the fit pitch, this is Cremonese, uh, for the second 45, they looked like they'd been struck by dizziness and confusion. Um, at the end of the game, the team manager was not happy at all with what, what's gone on and was very confused, so he reported the incident to the police. Uh, different scenarios were thought of, so they thought it was a revenge on a former employee, faulty air conditioning, expired drinks and food. Um, but then they had four blood tests on uh, four members of the staff, including three players, which re- resulted in traces of a potent sedative in the players. Uh, apparently, as a bit of a background for this, that one player almost crashed their car on the way home. He struggled to stay awake after the game. 
Wow. Which was a bit concerning, obviously. So this was uh, investigated, and they began looking into the actual squad of Cremonese. They wiretaped the players' phone calls and searched into the private lives of the players. So the police weren't taking any uh, prisoners with us, pardon the pun. Um, they focused the attention on, on the team's goalkeeper. His name was Marco Panoli. He had been at Cremonese for two seasons and had um, teams scouting him as a potential new signing as well. So he's half decent. The only problem is that Panoni was a gambler as well. Obviously, with no luck, he owed money to a group of Italian betters, just basically everybody, ranging from, for example, a dentist in Ancona to a former footballer in Bari, just just everyone, you name it, he, he owed money to them. So these people wanted their money back and they wanted it immediately. So, so Marco Panoli had promised he would fix some games, so that they could pay the so he could pay the money back that he owned. Um, all they needed to do was bet on the actual results. So what Panoli did was at half time he spoke, spiked his own team's water bottles with tranquilizers. So to do that, obviously to pay off his own debts. Um, he was found guilty, banned for five years, and with further investigations, it was believed to be linked to a um, match-fixing ring led by disgraced um, Singaporean owner Dan Tan. Um, this wasn't the first time he did this, um, Paul Oney. He's fixed matches in the past. He did it during a game with Lazanza. Uh, he made an error. Um, on the last minute, um, and then um, he actually then got himself sent off as well for hitting a ref in the face. Uh, there is a there is a small uh, bit to say that they they did try and give this guy an interview, but he refused to talk unless they paid him money to. But yeah, so this guy was willing to get clues that's by any mean or force, so spiking his own team. Just unbelievable, isn't it? Wow. Straight out of a movie, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. All right, thanks for that, Chris. Okay. All right, for my number seven, I've gone for a match between Accrington, Stanley and Berry. Yeah, I looked at that one. Yeah, I think I know this one. So um, the match finished 2-0 to Bury in uh, May 2008. And after the match, there were four Accrington players that were suspended and fined for carrying out bets on the outcome of their match. So David Mannix, uh, Jay Harris, Robert Williams and Peter Kavanagh, they all bet on their own side to lose. So um, I found it funny that um, David Mannix, he bet £4,000 on the team to lose. Jay Harris bet £2,000. Robert Williams, £1,000. And Peter Kavanagh, he he bet on a £5 accumulator. Now, following a 10-month investigation, Jay Harris was banned for a year and fined a total of £5,500 by an independent FA regulatory commission. Uh, David Mannix received a 10-month ban, fined £4,000. Robert Williams was suspended for eight months. The chairman of the regulatory commission, 
Nicholas Stewart QC said in a statement, the regulatory commission have serious concerns that the outcome of the match may have been fixed, although none of the players were charged with these offences. He then added, the suspensions and fines are imposed because the FA rules restricting betting by players on matches and competitions which they are involved with are vital to ensure public confidence in the integrity of football. These players were all in blatant breach of these rules. Three players, Mannix, Harris and Williams, were Accrington players at the time and they bet on the opposing team, Berry, to win. Actions which would shock any fair-minded football fan. Mr Harris even played for Accrington in that match. Uh, one bookmaker, Betfair, took bets of £281,000 on Accrington Stanley to lose that match. And that's 14 times the amount that would normally expect to take on a batch in the, at that level. Uh, William Hill suspended betting when large stakes were being waged on the match and the odds had been cut on Berry to 11 to 10 on. Most similar matches that weekend, they only take £20,000 being staked. That's... Uh, 10, 10% of what was actually being put on that match between Accrington and Berry. Uh, the FA actually changed the referee and the assistants at the last minute to ensure that there's no shadow of suspicion around the officials in that match as well. So they, they came in the last minute. So yeah, it's just, um, that was in 2008 in English football where people are betting against, betting against their own team. Professionals are doing that. That's madness, isn't it? Absolute madness. All right, that's my number seven. Ants, what have you gone to number six? Okay, I've gone with the Sunderland in 1957 and their illegal payments. Okay. I don't know this one. I think I did briefly touch on it when we did the um, club declines. I didn't go into any any detail about it. Okay. Um, Okay, you need to bear with me. I've written quite a lot on this, so I'll I'll try and cut a little bit out as I go. (laughs) All right, go for it. Um, okay, firstly, you, you need to understand that the rules for the Football League in regards to the maximum wage back then um, was that basically in 1938, the maximum wage payable to a player was £8 per week. By 1950s, this figure um, it had ridden to £15 with a maximum signing on fee of £10. Now, you place this in context with the other countries at the time, 1956, uh, Eddie Fermani transferred from Charlton to Sampdoria. He received a lump sum of £5,000 and paid a wage of £100 per week and given a luxury flat. It, it just showed that the maximum wage in this country at the time was an absolute sham. Now, to get around this, it was well known within English football that players received under the counterpayments. Uh, in 1957, Sunderland legend Trevor Ford published his autobiography. And the first chapter was entitled Under the Counter, where he gave support to a proposal by then Manchester City chairman, Bob Smith, for an amnesty, um, which a sensible discussion could take place regarding a player's maximum wage. These ideas were rejected. However, in 1957, a letter signed by a Mr. Smith, um, no relation to Bob, made allegations about these under the counter payments at Sunderland's. And the um, Daily Express and people got wind of this letter. And it was noted that this person gave enough insight into Sunderland that it had to be someone within the club. Either it was a disgruntled director, um, a power struggle had been rumoured at the time, or it was a jealous player who'd obviously heard that other players were getting more than he was. 
Now, Sunderland were known then as the Bank of England club at the time because they paid a lot of money in transfers. Anyway, all of this was enough for Alan Hardacre, Secretary of the Football League, to look into it. And he was close to giving up because um, he couldn't find anything at all. And then one final look through the books revealed a pencil note on the accounts asking, in inverted commas, where do I post this? The figure was around £3,000 for the purchase of straw. Now, back then, there was no undersoil heating. So clubs used to buy straw, cover the pitch with it in winter. <laughs> Looking at the club accounts, underground maintenance, it doubled from uh, £5,000 in May 1952 to £10,000 in May 1956. Uh, so Hardacre phoned his brother Ernest, who happened to be chairman of Whole Rugby League. Um, and he said to him, how much does it cost for you to cover your ground in straw in a, in a winter? And his brother said, well, it depends how many Saturdays are involved. And Hardacre said, well, if I gave you £3,000, would you be able to manage for a season? And he, he, his brother went, well, for that, we'd manage for 25 seasons. <laughs> so Sunderland were rumbled, basically. Um, what they were doing was they were placing orders for straw and tarmac far in excess of what was required. And then when the suppliers came to deliver the items, they gave credit notes to Sunderland for the amounts returned. And in turn, the club cashed credit notes in with the suppliers and used the money to pay their players over and above what the permitted maximum wage was, ah. basically under the counter. Yeah. Um, it was determined that the practice had been going on for five years and amounted to about £5,000. Bill Ditchburn, the Sunderland chairman at the time, admitted sole responsibility, although he did dob in his close friend Bill Martin, um, saying that he was also involved in it. Uh, in fear of being found out, it was later discovered that Ditchburn had paid £2,700 back into the club accounts to try and balance the books. Um, Trevor Ford was... Uh, he refused to retract the allegations he made in his autobiography and he was banned forever by the Football League. But he had his ban retracted and uh, he went on to sign for PSV in 1957. The same year, the Football League made its ruling into the affair. Sunderland were, were fined £5,000, which was then the biggest fine ever issued to a football club. Um, three of the directors were barred from football for life, including Ditchburn and the vice chairman. Um, the rest of the board were severely punished as well. And then worse was to follow, because on 25th of April 1957, five Sunderland players were hauled in front of the FA Commission to answer for their part in the scandal. Ray Daniel, Ken Chisholm, Billy Elliott, Willie Frazier and Johnny Hannigan. Um, all five remained silent on instruction of lawyers, and in doing so, they ended up with um, forever bans from football. A long saga followed. Um, in the end, all five players admitted to receiving under-the-counter payments uh, and, and the bans were lifted and they had lesser sanctions imposed. However, the damage was done. Um, Bill Murray, the Sunderland manager, was fined and one month later he resigned, ending his 20-year stay at Sunderland. It rumbled on for another five years and eventually in April 1962, the maximum, uh, with the maximum wage now abolished, the High Court in London ruled that the FA and the Football League had no power to act as they did. So basically Sunderland were in bits and it was for nothing really. Um, a year later, they got relegated for the first time in their history. Wow. Hmm. 
That's an amazing story. <laughs> Take I need a to lie down after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's brilliant. Story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's incredible. The, the links that they went to as well. Yeah. Uh, they almost got away with it as well. <laughs> yeah, just to try and launder the money. Yeah, crazy. No, oh, that's an amazing story. Thank you for talking me through that one. That's all right. <laughs> From Roker Park sprang the sensation that shook the world of football rigid. Sunderland were fined £5,000. Two directors, including one-time mayor, the chairman, E.W. Ditchburn, suspended from all football management. Four players of Sunderland today, with former teammates Chisholm and the ebullient, always in the limelight, Trevor Ford, are to be at a joint FA and league inquiry. Sunderland chairman Ditchburn pulled no punches when interviewed. All right, Chris, uh, what have you got at number six? At number six, I've got the British football fixing scandal of 1915. Oh, I think I might have this one at number five. Oh, okay. At number three. Do you want me to do it now? Yeah, you can do. Um, Yeah. I I will add to it because I've incorporated another scandal into it, so... Oh, fair enough. Brilliant. Wow, okay. You kick us off and then I'll finish it. Yeah, no worries. Give you a bit of a break, eh, Ant, as well. <laughs> um, this was on Good Friday, 1915, between Liverpool and Manchester United. Um, at the time, Man U were in danger of relegation and Liverpool were just sitting on mid-table. There was quite a lot of people there at the time, 18,000 people, and they watched, basically, uh, Man United win 2-0. They were 1-0 up at half-time. Um, this surprised quite a lot of, of the local rags. I've got some quotes here from them. Um, first one coming from the, the Liverpool Daily Post. They said, uh, a more one-sided first half would be hard to witness. Liverpool defender Bob Purcell conceded a penalty by handing the ball in the 48th minute. Um, O'Connell missed the penalty by some distance. And George Anderson added United and his second and the 75th minute. Then the Sporting Chronicle wrote, the Liverpool forwards gave the weakest exhibition in his half, seen on the ground during the season. Despite conceding two goals, Elijah Scott performed excellently in goal and forward. Frank Pagnon was dangerous for Liverpool, hitting the crossbar in the second half and seemingly almost chastised by a colleague for trying to score a goal. That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Mm, Um, The Manchester Daily Dispatch reported, uh, maybe more tellingly, the second half was crammed with lifeless football. United were turning it up with 22 minutes to play and they seemed so content with the lead, they apparently never tried to increase it. Liverpool scarcely gave the impression that they would would be likely to score. So obviously with with all these newspaper reports... um, the FA sort of got involved at the beginning. Sorry, the result was declined beforehand. Then they've looked at the bookmakers' odds and they're, they're laid at eight to one for United winning two 0 And then a large number of bets had been made for the score to be two 0 which then reduced it by half to four to one. Surprisingly, um, the two points that Man U actually earned from the game, actually earned them 18th place and security by one point ahead of 19th place, Chelsea, who were relegated. Like I just said earlier, the FA investigated this and found 
Both sides were in, involved in rigging the match. Uh, Sandy Turnbull, Arthur Worley and Knock uh, West of United and um, Jackie Sheldon, Tom Miller, Bob Purcell and Thomas uh, Fairfell of Liverpool were all given life bans. Sheldon was a former United player himself and was found to be the plot swing leader. Um, some players, such as Pagnum and United's George Anderson, had re- refused to take part. Pagnum had threatened to score the goal to ruin the result, hence his late shot against the crossbar. He later testified against his teammates as well in the FA hearing. Wow. At the same hearing, um, United player Billy Meredith denied any knowledge of match fixing, but stated he became suspicious when one of his teammates wouldn't pass the ball to him. <laughs> I mean, I, I looked into it a little bit more and I know that, unfortunately, the World War came in, didn't it? And I think somebody was still arguing the facts when they're in, in the World War. If you guys got anything else to add to that? Uh, just to your final point about the war, um, I've, I've got a note here that for service to their country, the life bans were actually overturned in 1919. Uh, one player didn't survive the war, unfortunately. It was um, Turnbull, wasn't it? Mm. You got any more, Ed? Um, not not to the initial bit, no. There was another scandal that I really wanted to put in and I couldn't find space, but then I realised that it actually follows on from this. It has a, it has a direct wanna, knock-on effect. Do you want to save it for your number three? Uh, yeah, I can do, if you want. Yeah, all right, we'll do that. Now, um, part of the reason I've done that is because we've now... Done my number six and my number five. So, um, we're going to your number five, I believe, Ant. It's the Man City financial scandal of 1906. Ooh. All right. Go on, then, Have you got a book on this? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you got the damn book on scandals. You've been digging deep this week. I've, I have, I've done some research this week. Okay. Bear with me again with this one. It's very similar to Sunderland. Um, in 1906, uh, Man City were found to be funneling money through secret accounts uh, to get around rules designed to stop wealthy individuals from pouring their money into the club, thus gaining an unfair sporting advantage. It's also very similar to recent Man City. Um, <laughs> and they probably would have remained undiscovered had it not been for a player called Sandy Turnbull. <laughs> Sandy Turnbull basically threw a punch in a game. So in 05, uh, 04-05 season, which is coming to an end, City, Everton, Newcastle were fighting for the title. Two of the remaining fixtures, uh, a 2-0 win over Everton and a 3-2 defeat at Villa, was marred by violence. Everton's Tom Booth was the prime suspect um, in that game, while Sandy Turnbull was the main suspect in the Villa game by punching Villa's Alex Leake. Uh, the FA launched an inquiry. Booth, Turnbull and both match refs were suspended for a month. Um, among those given evidence was an unnamed man who apparently held a responsible position in Birmingham uh, municipal life. And he had overheard that City star, Billy Meredith, another name, another familiar name, had offered Leek £10 to throw the game. Based on this, Meredith was banned for an entire season and found guilty of bribery. Anyway, Meredith spent the rest of the season coming into the club and asking for money. And an accountant by the name of Tom Hindle, who was working on behalf of the FA, 
and he was at City studying their books at the time, noticed this and he raised his suspicions and made mention of the board's refusal to lend itself to any illegal practices. Uh, the FA opened another investigation and Meredith lost his call and began to talk, leading to all of City secrets coming out. In 1904, the FA had had suspicions that City were flouting the financial rules after a newspaper uh, magnate, Edward Halton, took over. He assembled a great team. They came second. They won the FA Cup. But the FA couldn't find any evidence that there was any wrongdoing going on. But finally, in 1906, they did. And it turned out that a percentage of the gate money, instead of going into the club's account, was being funneled into a private account of club directors uh, held at different banks, and from there, off the books payments went to the players. They also found out that Meredith had been promised his entire salary throughout his suspension, just as soon as they could get rid of this FA accountant Hindle that was hanging around. Uh, every player that was implicated, and there were 17 in total, was fined, suspended, banned from playing for City again. Two directors were banned for life, um, two others for a year and the, the remainder ordered to resign. Meredith and Turnbull were among a number of squad members who ended up at Manchester United, hence why they then got involved with the match-fixing scandal. Although Meredith would actually make a improbable return to Man City 15 years later, making his final top-level appearance in an FA Cup semi-final just four months short of his 50th birthday. Basically, everything City had built over the the, the years before the scandal uh, of illegal overspending had been destroyed, they come second, third, fifth, and uh, in the three th in the three seasons before the decision, and then in the years after, they came seventeenth, third, and finally nineteenth, and got relegated. And more than three decades passed before they finally won the league again, which they might have actually won that season had Sandy Turnbull not punched Leak in April nineteen oh five. <laughs> wow. One act of stupidity has led to all of that. Yeah. Obviously, back then they didn't have Portuguese hackers, did they? So, players <laughs> to be stupid. All right. So, Chris, what have you got at number five? I've got Marseille 1993. I've uh, put that one a bit higher. Oh. Snap. Mine's number two. Oh, we'll wait for that one then. What have you said then, Dan? I'll put that number, put number one. Oh, fair enough. Okay. No, that will we'll wait then with that one. You can do the talking for that one, Dan. <laughs> well, I was just about to say I've not I've not taught for a while, and we've already done my number five, so I think I might. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you want I to might do change one, the then? order, and I'll give you my number four now. Oh, okay. So my number four, I've gone for Chelsea physio Eva Canero. Oh, mm. okay. That's an interesting one. With uh, Jose. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure you remember it, but I'll I'll go through the detail again. So it was in August 2015. The physios John Hurt, John Fern, and Eva Canero they were criticised by Chelsea manager Jose Mourinho after the 2-2 draw with Swansea. Uh, Hazard had to leave the pitch after receiving treatment, and it meant that Chelsea were down to nine men at what Mourinho claimed was a crucial stage of the game. Now, Canero claimed that um, Mourinho had shouted at her in Portuguese in that incident, Fila de puta, which means daughter of a whore, as she ran onto the pitch to treat Hazard. So Chelsea, uh, after the game, Mourinho went on to publicly criticise both Canero and Fern for being impulsive and naive. 
Kinero was demoted following the incident, and shortly after that, she left the club. Kinero claimed that she had been sexually discriminated against, reference uh, Mourinho's comments, during the game, and she filed a lawsuit against the club for constructive dismissal. After initially turning down a settlement offer of £1.2 million, the case was eventually settled before it went to court. Uh, The incident had caused a lot of unrest at the club, and after a poor string of results following this, Mourinho was actually sacked as the manager in December. Uh, By the time the court case was settled, he was the Manchester United manager. In a statement, though, Canero said, I am relieved that today we've been able to conclude this tribunal case. It's been an extremely difficult and distressing time for me and my family, and I now look forward to moving forward with my life. My priority, as always, has always been the health and safety of the players and fulfilling my duty of care as a doctor. So that's all I've got on that one. I just uh, I thought it was, a, it was a big scandal over the uh, sexual discrimination aspect of it and the fact that she's just trying to do her job by yeah. treating some players and then she's demoted following that. To, to have what, all that happen. What happens, year was that again, Dad? 2015. Wow, it's seen like yesterday since that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus. I completely forgot all about that one. That's yeah, that's, that's a good that's one. A great you look very unhappy right at the end. I saw you go to the touchline. You look re- what was the I problem was very unhappy with my medical stuff uh, because um, you have to understand the game. Uh, even if you are a kid man, uh, a doctor or, or a secretary on the bench, you have to understand the game and you have to know that you have one player less. And when you go to the pitch to to assist a player, you you must be sure that the player has a, a serious problem. And I was sure that Eden hadn't a serious problem. He had a he had a knock. He was very very tired. And my medical department, in the impulse naive, they let me they let me with with uh, with eight field players and um, in a counter attack after a, a set piece we were with uh, with two players less. All right, so that that's my number four. So we'll move on to your number four now. Oh, back to me again. Okay. Um, all right, my number four is a very late entry, so I've not actually written that much, thankfully. That's all right. So I've this could well be a first in our podcast. I've gone for the FA banning women's football in 1921. Wow. <laughs> I think this is in my little book, but I've uh, I've not put it on my list. <laughs> Um, so basically, women's football first came sort of to prominence in the late 1890s. Uh, pressure all over it like a rash. They're, they're attacking the women's appearance, their bodies, um, basically setting the perceptions for, for years to come, really. You know, football was deemed as a rough man's game. It was unsuitable for ladies. Anyway, um, despite the best efforts, it didn't really get off the ground until 20 years later. Um, with World War One starting... And the men all going off the war, all the men, all of men's football was suspended. But women's matches uh, surged in popularity, and it was supported by the FA as a means of funding the war effort. They were allowed to play in the team's main stadiums, uh, use the changing rooms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and they were given the same prominence in football magazines, almost as if you know women's football back then was completely the norm, which you know, it should have been really. Um, but the war ended. The men returned from home. Um, but the popularity of women's games in the falter. Uh, Boxing Day 1920 at Goodson Park, Dick Kerr's ladies and St. Helen's ladies 
two of the best teams around at the time, played out to, to 53,000 people. Thousands more turned away. Um, a large number of women's teams had formed over the UK. Every city had one, um, more, probably more than one. And there was an appetite for leagues, a governing body and women to play professionally. Um, but equivalently, games between the men's uh, teams drew nowhere near as many crowds or headlines. So while the fundraising was appreciated during the war, the general opinion was that it was time for the women to leave the pitches and let the men's football come back properly. Uh, there was even reports that uh, teams were the, the ladies' teams were allocating money raised from charities and paying the ladies, and this was seen as very unacceptable back then. Can't be paying women to play football. Um, so in December 1921, the FA banned women from playing football and using the pitches, and they said it was because of a financial scandal. But truth of it was. Um, they just didn't want women to be seen playing a man's game. The ban had a devastating effect. Uh, league football clubs barred female players from the pitches. Registered refs weren't allowed to officiate women, women's matches. Um, and without these adequate facilities, the sport became unsustainable and destroyed any credibility which they built up over, over the years. And this ban wasn't lifted until 1971. Um, by which time the damage had, had obviously been done, and what could have been, you know, a, an establishment of the earliest and most successful women's league in the world, instead they they had to wait until 2018 for England to finally get their first professional women's league. Absolute yeah. madness, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Women's football was once more popular than the men's game. It drew huge crowds a hundred years ago. The biggest team at the time was Dick Kerr Ladies. And this is where they used to play, at Deepdale Stadium in Preston. But the popularity of women's football didn't go down well with the people who ran the game. On the 5th of December 1921, the FA banned it. They described football as quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. The ban lasted for 50 years and effectively changed the women's game forever. So, Chris, what have you got for us at number four? Um, I've got the Italian uh, Totonero 1980. Have you got that at all? No. I, I left that one off because it's very similar to another Italian scandal. Which is it amazing. is, yes. No, that's why I left that one off. Oh, OK. No worries. So, yeah, so the Totonero stood by the press um, as the Totonero Fair, named after the term for illegal gambling. Um, more than 30 players accepted money from two um, Roman businessmen. So that was Massimo Cusino, a 32-year-old fruit and veg trader, and Avardo Trinca, a 45-year-old restaurant owner, to throw matches, and some of them wagered against their own team. So the plot was actually hatched at Trinca's restaurant, um, where several Lazio players died regularly. Some of Lazio's players included some internationals and they agreed to fix matches for a fee. So the first attempt to fix a match was a friendly between Lazio and Palermo in late 1979, but did not come off because the Lazio players missed their plane flight. The second attempt, an arranged draw between Palermo and um, Toronto, ended up in a way win though one player did everything he could to, to concede a penalty in the second half. 
The third attempt, which occurred during a match between Avigo and Perugia, netted Cristina and Trinca £3,000. But the duo continued to have problems. Some bookmakers refused to accept their wages. One Lazio player, Matassi, refused to participate and they lost huge sums on, the, on some matches. After a Milan-Lazio match did not turn out as planned, the duo convinced the Lazio players were convinced. Were convinced, sorry, that the Lazio players were conning them. So now we're in March 1980. Um, Tom Teske was interviewed, stating that corruption was everywhere in football. An investigation had begun, and as Trinka and Cusini uh, had begun to receive threats from those who they lent money from. As they move further into into the debt, um, the fixing attempts of the debt didn't work out. Um, their families began to receive threats because of the money they owed, and um, Trusino's father decided to go to the authorities after one of his trucks was set on fire. Um, they actually went public on the first day of March in 1980. But the courts were unlikely to have any sympathy for the fact that they were, facts, they, they were actually the max fixtures themselves. They were being conned for their own bad doing, so they're not going to do anything. Um, on the 23rd of March, um, 11 players and club officials were arrested during half-time of matches all across Italy. So the police coordinated a tactic to prevent the suspects from co- collaborating on their alibis. The entrances to Milan's locker rooms were blocked so that two players and the club president were arrested. Paloma's injured captain, Gradi Magrani, was handcuffed in the stands, but some players were allowed to turn, turn themselves in in more better ways and even two were allowed to um, have a shower before being apprehended. One of the players was a certain Paolo Rossi who was involved in this who would later play a massive role in the 1982 World Cup. He was actually played a minor role in this. He received a three-year sentence, but was shortened to two to then help Italy win that World Cup. Um, Milan and Lazio were relegated to Serie B, whilst in Serie A, Alavido, Bologna, Perugia were deducted five points, and Serie B teams, Palermo and Toronto, were deducted five points. Wow. You've got all, all the detail out for us there, Chris. I, I just find it funny that they, they decided to ban Rossi for three years and, uh, oh, crap, there's a World Cup coming up. We'll yeah. cut it down to two. I know. And, and the, the other funny thing is is how the the father of this betting syndicate decided to go to the police thinking they were going to do something to help him from getting up. Getting, helping yeah. the cons get their money back. I mean, it's just <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I think we'll take us into the top three now then. My number three, I've gone for the East Germany Olympic gold medal winning team from 1976. So um, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the East Germany doping scandal of the Olympics. Yep. Now, uh, this all first came to light in 1977 when a, a shot putter by the name of Ilona Slupianek tested positive for anabolic steroids. Now, the International Amateur Athletics Federation suspended her for 12 months 
a penalty that ended two days before the European Championships in Prague. And she went back to East Germany, took more steroids and continued to train and then came back and won a gold medal again at the European Championships. So not what they intended. But um, just to give a bit of um, background to this, um, East Germany, their performance at the Olympic Games. In 1968, they won nine gold medals. 1972, 20 gold medals. In 1976, 40 gold medals. One of which was the men's football. So what we now know is that East Germany, they uh, systematically used anabolic steroids and testosterone for as part of a decade-long program to enhance the performance of their athletes at the Olympic Games. And uh, as I know Ant referred to on a previous podcast, this was to further their communist uh, regime abroad to try and uh, get uh, lots of international recognition. Former footballers have revealed that uh, in East Germany, they've also been injected with performance-enhancing substances without their knowledge at the time. They were told at a later date. Now, although there are no direct tests that point to guilt towards the men's football team that won the gold medal, just all sporting achievements by East German sportsmen and sportswomen at that time, they're all tainted by this mass doping regime. That happened in East Germany at the time. Wow. Yeah, I can definitely see why it's high up on your list, mate. Yeah, it's um, it goes beyond football, if I'm honest. Mm. Uh, I was really unsure where to put this one on my list. It could have really gone anywhere between 10 and 1 um, for different reasons. But um, yeah, it, it, it is a tainted victory, that gold medal for the men's football team. And, oh, it's very similar to the Russian teams now, isn't it? That they're in the same sort of boat. Yeah, it is. I'd say this was more blatant. I don't know if you've seen any images of some of the athletes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were jacked on steroids, <laughs> big time. I'm not, I'm not kidding. They really were. Uh, it's, it's sad in a way as well, because a lot of these athletes suffered health problems after this, afterwards as yeah. well. Um, they weren't aware of what they were taking and the damage it would do to them. I know a lot of the female athletes had uh, things like ovarian cysts and they couldn't conceive children, things like that. And eventually they ended up being compensated for that treatment that they got. Ah, good one. So, Ant, are you ready to give us part two of your 1915? Yes. Go for it. So as uh, Chris rightly mentioned earlier, United conspiring to win this game consigned Chelsea to relegation. Um, and then obviously the league was um, suspended because of World War One. Uh, when World War One ended... Uh, Blackpool was in favour of expanding the top division from 20 to 22 teams and they got their wish. But the question was who was going to get the nod to be part of the expansion. Chelsea was obviously the obvious choice because they were the relegated victims. Um, Tottenham had finished bottom that year and if logic was to dictate, they would have survived too. And then Derby and Preston would have come up from Division 2. However... Arsenal had other ideas. Arsenal at the time finished fifth in Division 2. No hope of promotion. But owner Sir Henry Norris, the same guy that moved them from Woolwich to North London, annoying Spurs in the process, uh, was having none of it. He was chairman of Arsenal. He was a Tory MP. He was former mayor of Fulham. Um, Basically, he 
called in favours. He uses influence and allegedly used some money um, to help make up people's minds. He contacted every single top flight club except Tottenham to argue his case as to why Arsenal should get promoted. Um, the president of the Football League at the time, John McKenna, argued that Arsenal should be given Tottenham's place on the basis that they've been in the top flight for 15 years more than Tottenham have. Barnsley and Wolves, who had both finished above Arsenal in the second division, didn't see it that way. So eventually, in order to decide the last remaining place for this new expanded division, it was put to a vote. Barnsley received five votes. Um, other clubs shared a handful between them, and the bulk went to Arsenal and Tottenham. However, Tottenham got eight votes, but Arsenal received 18 votes. And that's how Arsenal took Tottenham's place in the first division, where they've remained ever since. Wow. wow. <laughs> Crazy. And that's, why there's, and that's that. why there's a small rivalry. <laughs> well, there is that, one yeah. Of, one of the reasons, yeah. One of the reasons, yeah. Um, <laughs> another little bit I found, I, I don't know how true this is. One of the, you ever heard the phrase sick of the parrot? Yeah. yeah. One of the theories of where this came from, and there are many because I've Googled it, is that on the day that this vote was announced, um, a parrot that Spurs brought back from South America dropped dead. <laughs> All right. No, that's a, that's a great one. I'm glad we uh, came back to that one a bit later. So, Chris, what's your number three? Yeah, uh, mine's the Bund- Bundesliga st- scandal of 1971. This one with Hertha Berlin? Yes, they were involved with, with yeah, football, yeah. I, I considered it. There's a lot of it I didn't understand, I think. That's why they got off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, then I'll go through as quickly as I can. So the date we've got here is the, the 6th of June, 1971. The president of Bundesliga's team, Offenbacher Kickers. His name was Horst Giorgio Canales. It's 50th birthday, so he's having a nice garden party to celebrate that. He's uh, invited um, a list of celebrities, reporters, um, including German national team coach at the time, Helmut Schoen. Um, unfortunately, um, the couple of weeks before, sorry, a couple of days before even, um, his team got relegated into the... Uh, he's very outspoken at the time and arranged, obviously, for this gathering. Um, but as a bit more of a background, he had um, some concerns over fellow relegation candidates, um, Armenia Byfeld, that basically they bribed their way to stay in the division. At this time, they were 100% stay in the league since it was inaugurated. And when you move down to um, Bung- the second division of Bundesliga, you go sort of part time. So there's quite a big uh, money aspects involved with it so anyway he's got all these people um at his garden party and then he um flips out this audio tape on this audio tapes phone calls um and payments and all sorts that basically are um match fixing on it um but on this he had footballers on tape um, i.e. an international players like Bern Braxer and his Hertha Berlin teammate, Tasco Wild. They were 
Tate discussing a bribe from Canales himself to guarantee a win over Beinfeld, who themselves were fighting against the drop. Um, Bate confided that he already been take, been offered um, more money to throw the game by someone else representing Byfield. And then for the, the past two months before the end of the season, um, he had suspected there wasn't something quite right with the German top flight. His um, kicker's side had beaten Cologne to win the title and were promoted um, 12 months earlier but were relegated straight back down. Um, they, had a, they had a good run before the end of the season, recording four wins, four draws and four defeats. But they found themselves unable to pull away from two, the two relegated places, um, mainly due to the form of other teams around them. So, like I said, there was um, some famous names in, in this deception, including, like I said, Cologne's international keeper, Manfred Mangles was recording offering to let things go through in a game against another relegation threatened team called Rot Rince Essen. Um, so here we have got the last um, game of the season for Barfield, who were facing Schalke at the time. Schalke would lose the game against Barfield um, if I mean if they wired the money before the game started. According to the Schalke legend Klaus Fischer, um, whilst many experienced players initially refused the offer, they soon changed their mind when the game began and at the ease at which they could lose became clear, youngsters were powerless against established powerful teammates. So the deal was on for that bet to go through. By the end of the investigation, it was the discovered that 18 games were um, directly affected the relegation battle for that season. 52 players, two managers, six clubs were all punished, um, including horse Giorgio Canales. His his club were heavily punished as he was trying to to do the secret wiring himself to pretend to um, match fix. He actually obviously got done for match fixing because he was attempting to match fix. And I said match fixing a lot in one sentence there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's my number three. Quite a lot of uh, bad stuff going on then. Yeah, the scale of it. That's what's uh, got me on that one. Right, I think we've got two left. Have we all got the same two? I think, didn't Chris have Marseille further down? I had Marseille further down, yeah. So yeah, I'll you're right, yeah. I've got, uh, I put Juventus at my number two. And I've got Marseille at number one. Yeah, I'm, I'm the other way around. I've put Juventus at number one, and I've got something else at number two. Oh. Okay, so at number two, I've gone for Juventus, the Calciopoli. Now, this was a scandal uncovered in May 2006, when a number of telephone conversations were intercepted during relations between team managers and referee organizations in the 2004-2005 season. Uh, This was thought to be leading to the selection of favorable referees for teams' matches. The uh, Juventus general managers Luciano Mogi and Antonio Garrado had conversations with several officials at the Italian Football Association to influence referee appointments 
And in one of those conversations, Muggy accused Pierluigi Colina and Roberto Rossetti of being too objective and asked for them to be punished. That both referees were among the few referees to emerge unscathed from the scandal. So this implicated league champions Juventus and several other teams, including Milan, Fiorentina, Lazio and Regina. In July 2006, Juventus were stripped of their 2004-2005 title and they were downgraded to last place, thus relegated from Serie A. It had uh, implications for the club as there was a mass exodus of uh, important players such as Cannavaro, Taram, Ibrahimovic, and uh, there were actually in total uh, over 30 players in, that left Serie A uh, who had participated in the 2006 World Cup. They left Serie A due to that scandal and moved to other European leagues. It was, uh, it was quite a far-reaching scandal. Uh, match fixing, trying to appoint referees who were more lenient and yeah, it was embarrassing it's my memory of it, first and foremost yeah. it was very embarrassing for Italian football I think I think the reason I, the, the main reason I put it at number one is because it's so quite modern still, it, I know it's, you know, you're going back 14, 15 years but for it still to be around and, and for it to be involving such a big club as well, I just couldn't believe it. Somebody that was dominating the, the, the league anyway, that you just don't understand why they, they would even think of necessarily doing that. Just seems ludicrous. Yeah, it's it's uh, these some of these sometimes these businessmen that just go yeah. crazy, get drunk with power, don't they? They want it all yeah. their own way all the time. It's all a bit Godfather esque, wasn't it? As it moggy guy, you very much, you know, I'll, I'll make you an offer. You know, you, you stay close to me. I'll, <laughs> Is that I'll... literally what he said? Up? <laughs> no, no, but maybe not. But... <laughs> make you an offer. Probably not far off. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You put the right I referee mean, in the game, and I'll give you some money. You know. I mean, I've got here an example that apparently. Um, Juventus officials detained a referee, Gianluca Parasta, and his two assistants in the changing room after Juve's 2-1 loss at Regina in 2004 in November. was said to have, be, to have berated the, the officials for not favouring Juventus during the game. I mean, they've, they've lost the game to Regina where they should have probably won it, but yet there's still just this body boy tactics, isn't it? Almost a playground yeah, thing. Yeah, definitely, yeah. He I mean, was, I've got um, some examples of where they've, they've caught particular games where they managed to wiretap the conversations. I can give you the, a couple of them if you want. Yeah, go on, please. Uh, conversation between Moggy and Nations um, Referee Association, Gigi Barreto, on 11th of August 2004, a day after the Old Ladies Champions League um, third qualifying round game, showed Moggy expressing his disapproval of a match official after he ruled out a goal that was scored by Fabrizio Macaulay. Um, on the 23rd of August 2004, um, right before the second leg of the match against um, Drew Garden, um, Moggy and Perito discussed the crucial European match. Perito assured Moggy that Juventus will win 4-1. And guess what? They did. They did, yeah. 
the thing the thing I find funny is that the wiretaps weren't set up for this refereeing scandal. They were set up because there was allegations of doping. <laughs> and then they've uncovered this absolute <laughs> rabbit hole. But it, it's exactly the same like, as the one that you were saying earlier on with like, the yeah. guy where you just, he's just looking at something else and then he comes and he comes up onto this whole scandal of players being overly paid. It's just well, random, isn't it, how it happens? Okay, so one I had thing, that one thing before I forget is this kept a lot of players stayed loyal as well to Juventus. I know you said that a lot left, but the players that they kept was like Pavel Nedved, Alessandro Del Piero. I think didn't Buffon stay as well? You know, yeah, yeah. incredible players and fancy seeing them in front of sort of ten thousand people on a Serie B match. It must have been weird. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that was my number two. So we've not yet had your number two, Ant, that Marseille. Yeah, so let let Chris go first with his number two. Okay. The World Cup match between West Germany and Austria. I'll give you a bit of background with this one first anyway. So in Germany's group, there's Algeria. Um, They were pretty confident on winning the beating Algeria and they were giving them some real sort of stick in the media. They were that confident of beating Algeria that they only did a squad of 19 players, three less than a normal squad. The manager said if they couldn't beat Algeria, it would take the next train home. Another player, one player, sorry, boasted that he would de- dedicate his seventh goal to his wife <laughs> and eighth, eighth to his dog. And another player said they might as well pl- play the match smoking cigars all the way through. And guess what? They lost 2 1. Yeah. So, incredible. Um, so that's obviously put them in a bit of a predicament coming into this final game against um, Austria. So the, the only mathematical way for Algeria not to go through was if West Germany was to win by one or two goals. If they did, if they won by one or two goals, that would send both Austria and West Germany through. Um, their previous match between the two teams, I mean West West Germany and Austria, was in the '78 World Cup group stage. It ended up in a three-two win to Austria, thus sending West uh, Germany out of the, the World Cup. So we were, they're, you know, they're expecting an absolute barnstorm of a game. But unfortunately, there wasn't too much of that. Um, West Germany scored after 11 minutes, but unfortunately, it was a clinic of passing in the middle of the park. I think the best analogy you could put is, if you're of Simpsons fans, is the bit where they're doing the commentary of the passing. <laughs> and they've just passed the ball, yeah, and they're passed again. And, and that's basically how it was. Um, so, so that yeah, they're at half time, I don't know if you've ever seen the images of Algerian fans that were there um, waving money at half time, obviously fully aware that there's something not quite right going on between the two teams because as they left the pitch, they were all speaking to each other and all being friendly and all sorts. Um, so the second half started and it was an absolute ball fest. Again, there was just passing in the middle of the park, 
hardly any shots. I think they, they registered three shots in the whole of the half. And famously, an uh, Austrian commentator said to his viewers to stop watching the game and encourage them to even change the channel. And he and he actually stopped commentating for the, like, the last quarter of it. Excuse <laughs> that. I like that. Um, so at the end of the game, ended up 1-0. So that sends the two teams through, through West Germany and Austria. Algeria filed a complaint to the UEFA of wrongdoing by both teams. There's only one problem. The vice president of UEFA was also the president of the German Football Association. <laughs> so obviously that was declined politely. Then apparently Algeria received um, apology letters from German coaches for their apparent non-sporting match that they had. And there was that much of a kickoff, really, with regards to it, that that's when they started doing the final group matches at the same time. So that sort of thing could never be done again. So at least that's one good thing that came out of it. I'm sure Algeria don't particularly think like that, as they got absolutely screwed over. But, but yeah, that's why I put it at number two, because it was obvious if you saw it that there's something very suspicious going on. Yeah, no, that's, that's a brilliant story. I'm glad you put that on your list. Uh, you said there, though, that um, there are rules put in place so that it wouldn't happen again, but it happened in the last World Cup. Japan versus Poland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, Japan were 1-0 down, and they just kept the ball at the back, didn't want to concede another goal, and they progressed. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Thanks for that, Chris. It's okay. So, Ant, I think you're desperate to talk about Marseille. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm desperate, but <laughs> I'd rather talk about Marseille than Juventus. Um, okay, so this was my number two, your number one, and Chris, where was this? That was my number five, I think. Five, okay. Basically, um, French businessman Bernard Tappy bought Marseille in 1986. Uh, he plugs huge amounts of money into the club buying big names along the way, you know, your Jean-Pierre, Papin, Didier Deschamps, Chris Waddle, etc. Uh, they went on to win the league four years in a row, but it was the European Cup that he wanted. That's what Tappy really wanted, um, especially after Marseille lost the final to Red Star Belgrade in 91, I believe. Um, so March 93, this was the first sign that something dodgy was going down. Um, because they played uh, CSKA Moscow, who had come from 2-0 down to beat Barcelona in the previous round. They lost 6-0 to Marseille. 
Now, CSKA manager later admitted that he had received an offer to throw the game. He refused it, um, but it obviously still had some kind of effect. Next up was Rangers, who were neck and neck with Marseille in the group. Uh, Rangers had just conveniently lost Mark Haightley to suspension. Uh, he had been sent off in the previous game against Bruges for some handbags. Uh, Haightley, too, admitted that he had been approached by a French agent offering large sums of money uh, if he didn't play against Marseille. He had refused, but then he was conveniently sent off. Um, Marseille then needed to beat Bruges, and they did so thanks to a, a, a late sloppy error. Uh, Bruges also didn't really put up much of a fight. Anyway, Marseille got to the final, and before the match of the final, um, Marseille had to play um, Valenciennes to seal the League One title. Um, Tappy didn't want them to end up injuring a load of players, so they tapped up uh, George Buracharga, uh, Christophe Robert, and uh, Jacques Glassman. Uh, Glassman refused. Buracharga initially accepted the bribe, but he later bottled it. But it was Robert that accepted. And the night before this game against Valenciennes, he uh, met Marseille defender Jean-Jacques Idelli, who was in on the whole thing, and he handed over a lot of cash. Marseille won, um, and then a week later, they won the Champions League. Uh, but what became apparent was that during half-time of that Valenciennes game, that Glassman uh, approached his boss and told him everything, and so an you know, investigation was started. Marseille were immediately barred from defending the European title and allowed entry into the Intercontinental Cup the following season. Uh, their league title was stripped from them and runners-up PSG refused it, so that league title was actually unattributed to anyone. The following season, with this scandal still running on, Marseille came runners-up to PSG, but because of the outcome of the scandal, they were actually relegated. Tapi was jailed for just eight months. Ideally, he was jailed for 17 days and banned from football for 12 months, uh, although the scandal followed him throughout the rest of his career. And uh, fellow Monaco boss, Arsene Wenger, he was so disgusted by the whole thing, he quit and took over a club in Japan. Uh, anyone else got anything to add? <laughs> um, just a couple of bits. Uh, so you mentioned uh, one of the players, Christoph Robert. He um, accepted a payment. So... The detectives actually raided his aunt's back garden and found 250,000 francs. And after this, after this emerged, uh, Bernard Tappy initially claimed that the money was a loan for Robert to start a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> but um, later in court, Robert admitted that the money was related to bribery. <laughs> I got one where they said... Um... They had a, with the game in the French League that they, they spoke to the referee Jean-Marie Venel and he remarked that the game was unusual because Georges Barracuda did not dispute every one of his decisions like he would normally do, which I thought was a, an interesting one. And also, I don't know if you know, with the Mark Haightley sending off, he was apparently stormed into the dressing room and started kicking things around, saying he knew that something was going to go off that night yeah yeah for that i think didn't they yeah 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 it doesn't surprise me and um with mark Haightley, he said in an interview in 2011 on itv 
that he'd been offered money by Marseille not to play in that match. So it wasn't a case that he got himself deliberately suspended. That's that's not at all what happened. It just no, was no. a coincidence that he got the sending off, or maybe not a coincidence, a coincidence as Chris is insinuating. But um, yeah, Hately was angered by the the uh, the fact that he was approached, and he, that's why he went public with it on TV. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. I was getting at. I was saying that yeah. you know, he was you know, conveniently sent off against Bruges. Mm. Obviously, they obviously got to a Bruges player to perhaps rattle his cage a bit. Yeah. Whether that's improved, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think Bernard Tappy was um, a bit of a megalomaniac. Mm. <laughs> Incredible. And of course, yeah, that was yeah. the first season that the European Cup was called the Champions League. So, obviously, there's the additional... Yeah. Name wasn't it to be the first ever winners, but there's ways of winning it. <laughs> it's a shame because they had an all star team as well, which is exactly what the Champions League is all about. If you look at incredible that lineup, team. incredible team that they put together, yeah. and then Azul Bali, Rudy Voller, Alan yeah. Boxick, Didier Deschamps. Yeah, fantastic team. Drag uh, Stojkovic as well. Yeah, but yeah, they um, after all these uh, allegations and scandal came to light, uh, it all fell to pieces, didn't it? Boli dans l'axe, Marcel de Sailly au second poteau, but but de Boli, but de Basile Boli sur ce corner. Eh bien, c'est le moment idéal. All right, so I think I think that's uh, well, I think that's a very good list we've put together in the end. And poor old Ant, who's restricted himself to English football league clubs for the most part. <laughs> wow, did an incredible How job. How was that there. research for? <laughs> yeah, that's that's impressive. I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to the last podcast because I swear you said club football, Dan. Uh, might, I might have <laughs> might have done might have got my words wrong. Hey, look, at least it was different. Definitely. Do you have any special mentions? I had I had two. Go on. Um, Leeds Spygate scandal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, we we all know the story, so I'm not going to go into it. And um, the one that dropped out at the very last minute because I found that women's football one was the dodgy Swindon payments in 1990, which stopped them from getting promoted, and Sunderland oh. took their place. Oh, I didn't know that one. Basically, Swindon got promoted through the playoffs. There have been some dodgy payments going on. Chairman, the manager, Lou Macari, and Captain Colin Calderwood all got questioned. Calderwood wasn't charged. Uh, Swindon got prevented from coming up in 1990. And, yeah, Sunderland Sunderland at the place, basically. I think the bottom line was it was like um, similar to the Sunderland one because Swindon's not a particularly attractive place to go to. They were sort of funneling cash in places so that they could attract people with cars and houses and right. making them making them join Swindon. Oh. And uh, they got found out. Oh, do you have any special mentions, Chris? Uh, lasagna gate for the Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that might have been a little bit more of a light-hearted one. I was going to uh, say, was it, was it really a scandal? Yeah, it would be for Spurs fans, mate. <laughs> Is there a conspiracy attached to that? Well, apparently there is. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, Italy, South Korea in the World Cup, that game. 
where there was some very, very bad officiating, to say the least. Yeah. Mm. And then I was going to put another one from, uh, I don't know if you remember it, but the 1978, again, the World Cup, but the semi-final where Brazil scored, but the referee blew the whistle when the corner came into the box. And then Brazil, Zico scored. And because he blew the whistle before he scored, it was not counted. But then I just thought that's just bad refereeing. So that, that, that's bad refereeing. Yeah, we might as well add in the um, the Brighton free kick from a few weeks ago, then, won't we? <laughs> exactly. Uh, did you have any? Uh, I had one, and that was. Um, I actually had two. Uh, first one was um, involving Mister Neil Warnock in the oh. the Battle of Bramwell Lane. I think I know this one. So this was where. Um, Sheffield United. Is this the Paddy Kenny one? Yeah, so they have the goalkeeper sent off early doors. They brought on the subkeeper. And then losing to West Brom, they brought on the remaining two subs in the second half. And one of the subs, um, six months earlier, he'd had his uh, eye socket broken by one of the West Brom players. So he just instantly went for him, got sent off. And then I think they had another sending off and then two injuries. And then... The match got abandoned because they only had seven players that were fit to continue, <laughs> and there are lots of accusations from Gary Megson, the West Brom manager, that it was all orchestrated. The guys that were injured weren't really injured; they just walked off the pitch to exploit the rules that you have to have a minimum of eight players. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that was one I gave consideration to, but um, Bournet was cleared of any wrongdoing, and the match was replayed. So uh, the other one was. Uh, the 2011 Gold Cup, that competition that I love so much. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Mexican team had five players fail a drugs test. and Yes, they... I read about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Blamed yeah. it on some chicken they ate. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure it's not lasagna? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's something else altogether. <laughs> but, yeah, that, yeah, that's all I've got for those. No, I think think that it's a very we've had a very varied list as as far and well done for Anne. He's gone deep into the realms of nineteen twenties uh, football. Yeah, <laughs> one hand tied behind his back, just looking at the English club teams. <laughs> yeah, I did great. I didn't, just, I didn't just look at English club teams; I just looked at club teams in general. You know, had had I known to talk about Germany and Austria, which came up in every blooming scandal search I searched for. I would have talked about it, but yeah. It's given us a different list. Yeah. It certainly has. All right. Chris, have you got any of the top 10 scandals on social media? Um, I've got a couple of people that have put something on, yeah. Chris Kelly, um, he said... Anderlecht versus Nottingham Forest, European semi-final, refereeing scandal. That's back in 1984. And he said um, Juventus, obviously, 2006. Um, then I had um, Chris Stonage that said the the Notts County one is always interesting. I think uh, I think that he means that by Sven Goren, I guess, and bringing in Sol Campbell for big money and Kasper Schmeichel and then realising they didn't have the money. 
Yeah. Or, okay. or does he mean the one where the, the owner had his picture of his cock out when he was? Oh, that could have been one as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Is he not scouting on Twitter? <laughs> then, in the name of football podcast, Ali Dyer, he's always named on something or another, isn't it? Oh, he could be on every list, couldn't he? <laughs> he is that man does. And then um, the other one we've got is Philip Wilkinson, and he put Alan Pardew and Wags. <laughs> <laughs> Which Pardew I thought was game. quite funny. Uh, then I got uh, Perry uh, GS uh, Bout. He that he said um, how Brady Sullivan and Gold are still winning a football club. He's a Hammers fan, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, must be. And that's all I've got, I'm afraid, today. All right, well, I'll give you guys a break and I'll update people on the Fantasy Football. So, looking at the Fantasy Football League, uh, out of us three, Ant, surprisingly, you're still leading the three of us. You're in 12th position, 1,578 points. And then... Avers three, I'm in second place. I'm in twenty seventh with one thousand four hundred and fifty four. So I'm a good one thousand sorry, one hundred and thirty points behind you and uh Chris, you're in thirty fifth position on one thousand four hundred and eight points. So yeah, put a bit of a bit of a buffer between you and I now, Chris. Yes, we're still rotating, we're still playing the dance, aren't we? Yeah, you'll get that 30th spot, don't worry. <laughs> so um, looking at the Fantasy Football League, uh, in first spot, we've got Clerk de Cruz on 1,777 points. In second place, it's Altaib Hamid on 1,731. And it's a two-horse race now. So those two are racing away with it. As for the top scorer last week, that was Ethertoni Midzi, um, Massacre FC. So, yeah, in his team last week, he scored 104 points. Blimey. Yeah, if I get if I get 104 points over you, I'll be right up behind you. Aren't it? So, incredible. <laughs> yeah, he, he, in his team, he had Tyrone Mings with seven points. Uh, Ruben Says at Wolves, six points. Aaron Cresswell, 12 points. He's done. He's had a great season, fantasy football, Cresswell. That's the amount of assists he's got. Uh, Kurt Zuma, six points. Uh, Fernandez, 10 points. His captain was Kevin De Bruyne, who got him 32 points. Uh, Son with five points. And Harry Kane with 19 points. So, yeah, that's where we're all going wrong. How are you feeling with fantasy football this year? I've uh, I found it a bit of a bit grinding the amount of games that have been coming thick and fast. It's tough to get on top of, it, isn't it? Yeah, well, I found the same. It's been very a bit more different, isn't it? Because they're stretching the games out over like four days now, five days now instead of yeah two or three. Difficult to predict. Like you know, you got Man City that rotate their team. Become, you know, you, you have a double Man City week, you know, great, and then you think, well, no, because they'll rotate. And then strikers don't seem to, like the actual strikers on the fantasy football, what's class as a striker, mm. 
they're, they're not apart from Harry Kane. They're not really scoring any. It's all about midfield and defence. If you want to points this year. Yeah, yeah, I've struggled. I've definitely struggled this year. But oh well, if I can, uh, well, I'm probably just about in within range to try and catch you up. I don't know. <laughs> Be a minor miracle if I did, but we'll see. So I, I seem it. to remember I was pretty far ahead of you last season and then you won, <laughs> ended up winning the league. <laughs> yeah, I think at lockdown you were about 150 points ahead of me. <laughs> so you never know. You never know. All right, so all that's left for us to do today is for you two guys to go head to head on a quiz. <laughs> so the scores, uh, I've won nine and you've won seven, so you're not far Oof. behind me. You're one behind if you win today. And Chris, Chris is my bogey team, though. Uh, well, Chris, you're on three points. I'm on. I'm the Stoke. I'm the midweek at Stoke. <laughs> Come on, Chris. I'd like to say that I've picked lots of questions that Chris will be able to answer, but no, I, I'm not convinced no. that that's going to be the case. No. Okay, well, question one. Who was the first English player to win a World Cup golden boot? Gary Lineker. Correct. 1986, he scored six goals. One nil to Chris. Question two. Which country has won the most Copper America titles? Chile. No. Argentina. No. Brazil. No. Uruguay. Correct. <laughs> Process Ur- of elimination. <laughs> <laughs> Uruguay have won 15 titles. Argentina, 14. Although none with Neil or Messi. Won since 1993. <laughs> uh, Brazil have only won nine. Uh-huh. Right, this, this one will test you. Question three. What is the link between these players? Eric Cantona. Robbie Fowler. Saido Mane. Fastest hat tricks? Yep, I'll give you that. They've all set a record for the fastest hat trick in the Premier League. What an ant. Yeah. Had the first two, and I thought Leeds United, Leeds United. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> Sadio's not played for them yet. I'll give it time. All right, next question. Which player holds the record for the most FA Cup wins with seven? Medals won between 2002 and 2012. Lauren. No. Nope. Dallas. No. Nope. Not not a million miles away. Ashley Cole. Correct. Right, so it's three one to Ant. And I'm going to go to the, our first gamble question. Oh. So today I want you to gamble how many players you can name from Liverpool's starting eleven in the 2005 Champions League final against AC Milan. Starting eleven, okay. 
Who are you going to first, mate? First of all, I'm going to go to Ant. Six. I'll go seven. Eight. Eight. Eight out of 11. Can you go nine, Chris? Go on, why not? Let's just go nine. <laughs> How many times have you both watched this game? <laughs> A lot, which is why I'm quite confident. I'll go ten. Ten. Chris, can you name all 11 without any mistakes? <laughs> you know what? Let's go for it. Come on. Let's go. Go on, mate. Go on, mate. I've got faith in you. Come on. This is okay, first... so let me just type in. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jersey Duget. Yeah. Chore. Yeah. Steve Finnan. Sammy Hippier. Yep. Steven Gerrard. Yes. Harry Kuehl. Yep. Luis Garcia. Yep. Got four to go. Four, so we need another centre-back. Jamie Carragher. Correct. Okay, so that's that done. I'm going Biscan. You're going for Biscan? Yeah. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, Biscan was in the Martin 11. Um, one on. Milan Barros. Yep. Order. And the other two you're missing were Javi Alonso, John Alarisa. Oh, Alonso. Did you get would you have got both of them? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Could you name the subs? Uh Nietzsche. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably about it to be honest. Oh Cisse, he took a penalty, didn't he? That's yeah. probably about it. Couldn't tell anyone else. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. All right, number another gamble question. Mark Hughes has managed seven teams in his career to date. How many of those teams can you name? Seven teams? Yep. So that's club or international? I'll come to you first for that one, Chris. I'll go for... Five. Oh. Can you do six out of the seven, Chris? Come on, Ant. Let you... No, wait. Wait, before I go. <laughs> Final answer, Chris. <laughs> um, I'll go with... I'll go six. Oh, gone for it. Can you name all seven, Ant? <laughs> yeah, go on. All right. The floor is yours, Ant. All seven, please. Uh, Stoke. Yep. Um, QPR. Yep. Man City. Yes. 
Um, Blackburn. Yep. Uh, Wales. Yep. Two to go. Fulham. Yes. Well done. The tricky one. One left. Oh, God. Um, oh, Christ. <laughs> Southampton. Going for Southampton. Points yours, Ant. Correct. Uh, I had that in the bag. I wasn't confident on Southampton at all. When I counted on my hand, I miscounted Blackburn twice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How many questions are in this one, Dan? <laughs> no, there's, there's 15 <laughs> questions, Chris. Oh, the God. score is 5-1. Death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> <laughs> As if you don't get one right, yeah. All right, so... On this one, I want you to name the player as I read out the clubs he's played for. Okay. Real Madrid B, Real Madrid, Juventus, Real Madrid, Chelsea, Atletico Madrid, Juventus. Makaleli? Uh, both his spells at Juventus were loans. And he's there on loan now. Morata. Correct. Okay, so same kind of question. I'll read you the clubs. Stuya Bucharesti, Foggia, Genoa, Sheffield Wednesday. Popescu. No. Chelsea, Bradford City, Southampton, National Bucharesti. I would have said Dan Petrescu. Well, it is Dan Petrescu, but Chris, you said... Popescu. Yeah. Yeah. Did you mean Dan Petrescu? No, 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 no. It's not one. Yeah. That's what I thought you meant. That's why I was confused. No, no, I meant Popescu is the one that played for Spurs. Oh. <laughs> I didn't read Spurs out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I said it. I didn't say it. I said it halfway through, didn't I? I said it after Fodger. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's after if you'd, if you'd have said you meant Petrescu, I would have gave you that point. But well done for being honest. Fair play, Chris. So it's 6-2. Um, just count up how many questions I've got left. So that's got eight, have A lot, a late rally from Chris. Never know. Got another question, which is of the uh, the same kind. So I'll name the clubs. You need help with the player. Yeah. Red Star Belgrade. Sheffield Wednesday. Vitesse. Portsmouth. Fulham, Norwich, Havant and Waterlooville. Blimey. So I'd say think uh, Red Star Belgrade, 
Sheffield Wednesday, Portsmouth. Stankovic. I'll give you that. Dejan Stefanovic. Yeah, that's who I actually meant. <laughs> Dejan Stefanovic. Well done, Chris. It was 6-3 to Ant. You're still in it. Next question. Which football league club play their... Sorry, I'll rephrase that. Which English football club play their home games at Hewish Park? Oh... Oh, I know this one. Shrewsbury? No. Currently not. No. They're currently not a football league club. They're they're currently residing in the non-league. Oh, um... Wrexham. Yeovil. Yeovil. Correct answer. Uh, It's 7-3. So I need, need them all. Full house. I've got one more gamble question. And this one will sort the men from the boys. Oh, God. (laughs) In the 1990 World Cup semi-final, England played West Germany. How many starting players from either side can you name? So I'll give you a sec, and then I'll go to Chris first. Start with six. Bloody hell. Okay. Um, seven. Okay, there's 22 here. You can choose from. I'll go. I'll go eight. No, go on, Chris. Okay, eight. so, so, um, Andreas Bremer. Yep. <laughs> okay, Luther Mateus. Yep. Rudy Voller. Correct. Uh, I'll go Gary Lineker. Correct. Terry Butcher. Yep. Peter Shilton. Yep. Uh, Paul Gascoigne. Of course, yep. That's seven. One more. Come on, Chris. You need this to stay in it. (laughs) Who took a penalty? Oh, hey, don't give him clues. It's <laughs> <Chris, well> <laughs> Yes, correct. <laughs> Could I have Stuart Pearce, couldn't I? Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Ant. <laughs> you put me to shame there. I think I would have struggled here at five, to be honest. Uh, really? I think... Wow. Bit before my oh, time. Oh. <laughs> We both We're only older. a year older, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Adding into football to 94. You were 96, <laughs> like a recite lyrical about, but 1990, I'm not, I'm not too sure. All right, so I'll read the full list of players. Uh, Peter Shilton, Stuart Pearce, Des Walker, Terry Butcher, Paul Parker, Mark Wright, Chris Waddle, Paul Gascoigne, Peter Beardsley, Gary Lineker, David Platt, Bodo Ilgner, Andreas Bremer, Jürgen Kohler, Klaus Augenthaler, Thomas Berthold, Guido Buchwald, Thomas Hassler, Lothar Matthäus, Olaf Ton, Rudi Voller, Jürgen Klinsmann. Oh, Klinsmann. Well done, Chris. Still in it. But you need them all. <laughs> <laughs> Full house. Okay. Which 
English Football Club play their home games at Boundary Park? Mr. Rovers. No. Nope. Oldham. Damn it. Yeah. He's got it. Well done, Anne. So, Anne, you've won. Chris, got three questions left. You're playing for pride now. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Which English football league club are nicknamed the Saddlers? It's a Midlands club. I believe they're in League Two currently. Walsall. Correct. Which English football club are nicknamed the Monkey Hangers? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that one. Um, um, Barrow. I'll be honest, I thought you'd both know this one. I heard the story on um, Gillette Soccer Saturday. The story was told by Jeff Stelling. Because he's a fan of this club. Oh, Hartlepool. I'm not giving you the point for that, though. No, <laughs> yeah, it was apparently in Hartlepool, um, I think it was in the 19th century, there was a monkey who was suspected of being a French spy, so they hung him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought they were wow. the pool. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's true as well. They are. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, all academic now, but... Um, I did have uh, another question to sort the men from the boys at the, the end of the quiz, if, if it was needed. And that was, uh, which Premier League record is shared by Jamie Carragher and John Walters? There's something to do with own goals. Quickest own goal? Yeah. No. Scored at one end and scored at the other end. Mm, close, but no. Mm. You're very close, actually. Scored in scored own goals in three decades. No, <laughs> no, it's a bit simpler than that. Scored a goal and both ends got sent off. No, it's um, it's even more improbable than that, really, when you think about it. A bit simpler. Scored two goal own goals in one game. Correct. Mm. Fair enough. Wow, that's 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 one hell of a record. Exactly, yeah. I know Frank Sinclair scored two in two games, didn't he? Yeah, two in a game. Wow. <laughs> John Walters wasn't even a defender. <laughs> yeah. That was against Liverpool, wasn't it, John Walters? I can't He's, remember. I think he scored two against two own goals against us. Jamie Carragher's were against Liverpool. Normally it's Manchester United. (laughs) The final score, I've got it as 9-5. Yeah, that John John Walters one was two own goals and a missed penalty against Chelsea. Ouch. Not a good day at the office, if you had him on the Fantasy League team anyway. Triple captain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah 9-5 to Ant the scores overall now I'm in the lead still but just barely 9-8-3 Chris I need a big game from you next time mate 
I need to look, I need to improve my quiz quizzing now. I need to get some revision done before the big game. <laughs> when I was looking at questions for this quiz, I managed to find the page that had all of the, nearly all of the questions that Ant asked us for his last quiz. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to think up questions. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, good discussion on the Brexit. Some fantastic entries for the top ten. Uh, football scandals. Excellent research there, guys. Oh yeah, as uh, as per usual though, um if you want any lists add in, then just email us at VAR at the bar twenty twenty at gmail dot com. Yeah. Great Chris, thanks for that. And uh get in touch if you've got any suggestions for lists you wanted to cover in the future. So I think we're all off to have a bit of a lie down after that. <laughs> Yeah, that have you got anything problem. for next time, man? Have you got any ideas on your top ten or your top five? Uh, I was thinking um, to have a sort of a, an easier week that I'd I'd round off the flop trilogy with twenty ten <laughs> to present day. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough, and then. I did think maybe have a top five, just general, just, just a, a quick list of our top five iconic sponsors, shirt sponsors. Oh, nice one. That's, that's well, whatever reason, whatever comes to mind, whatever, you know, yeah. don't say anything about it, just name them. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah, oh, that'd be an interesting one. And who's, um, is it my go for the good, the bad, the obscure next week? It must be. I feel like I've not done yeah. one for about five episodes. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is, yeah. Cool. All right. I'll get on with that. I hear goalkeepers all the rage these days. <laughs> oh, I, I, I do have one goalkeeper up my sleeve, actually. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that wraps up episode 20. So that's goodbye from me. And me. And me too. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. See ya. See ya. Network.